I knew, like, I had 100% certainty that that was what you were going to sing. That means I'm predictable. No, we've got a mind sync. A mi- oh. Once you've been in love with someone for a certain amount of time, your consciousness is sync up oh, into, like, a perfect duality. Most romantic thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. So, episode seven. Yeah, here we are. We had a break. We had a brief hiatus. Yeah. Technical difficulties, folks. Stand by. I was not very well. Yeah, Sammy was under the weather. Coughing and sneezing and all that bad stuff. She was very unwell. And so we had to to give her some time to recuperate, to convalesce. You took care of me. I did, yeah. I gave you... Brought me cups of teas. Chicken soup and hot water bottles i didn't really but if you had wanted those you did make me tea and i made you copious amounts of tea enough tea to stern a small mule (laughs) yeah and now that you feel better i woke up this morning with like just a slight tickle in the back of my throat where it's like your Uh, body's kind of telling you that you might get a sore throat in a few days and so I was like, we need to record this today because this is like <laughs> the golden midpoint between our two like winter-based stints yeah. of illness. And I, I feel better, but then sometimes I do wake up and think, oh, am I not better? But then it goes away. It's like you just kind of feel a bit shit in the morning and then it kind of goes away. It's because it's so cold. Yeah. This is technically our Christmas episode since yeah. it's gonna it's four days to Christmas, right? Only so we four said, sleeps uh, to Christmas. Is it? I think so, yeah. It's the twentieth. Oh, okay. So it's gonna be if it's only just gone the twentieth. It's gonna be um out though, probably like the day before Christmas Eve or right. something, this episode. So it really will be like a Christmas I feel like we should be talking up. Uh, Something to do with Christmas, but none of our topics are going to really... I feel like Christmas is like... What do you say about it? Like, yeah. it's not really... I don't find it a very interesting subject matter. I've seen a lot of recently. This whole debate about whether you can say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. And I always say Merry Christmas. But I guess because I feel like... I want to say Americans. <laughs> sure, as you often do. They're just so obsessed with this whole, but if you're not religious, then I don't get why you're like celebrating Christmas or why you say, you can't say Merry Christmas, you have to say Happy Holidays. I'm not religious and I've always said Merry Christmas. I'm not religious and I've always celebrated Christmas. Like to me, they're separate. Like I know that, Christmas has a religious aspect and it's very religious for some people. Like they go to church on Christmas Eve, etc. But to me, they've never been like entwined really. Not so much so that I have, I, there's been like a, maybe I shouldn't celebrate Christmas because I don't believe in God. Yeah. And so I'm seeing a lot of like. I, I feel the same way. I think for most people at this point, at least in the Western world, Christmas is just kind of, it's a commercial holiday like Valentine's Day or Mother's yeah. Day. It's like, it's become so separated from its religious origin that it is really just 
decorations and gift giving and like getting cozy in front of the tv and watching christmas specials like that's why i think and i like you i would say merry christmas even though i have no religious instinct whatsoever i'm completely non-religious completely atheist but i would say it because it's just it's what's become ingrained in you christmas is like a time to you know well, mostly I associate it with getting gifts. I suppose now yeah. that I'm an adult, I should be thinking about giving gifts. But that's why that's why you start to like Christmas, and that's why it becomes kind of impressed upon you that Christmas is like this thing that gets like a happy response from you because you have this kind of yeah. childhood memory of getting gifts and and having people kind of lavish attention on you and and do like fun things with you to celebrate Christmas. Although. For a brief while, when I was young, um, we did go to church did you? on Christmas. Yeah, some you... midnight masses in there, yeah. and that can definitely take the fun out of Christmas real quick. Your family's a bit more religious than mine. I know they're not really religious, but like, if we put them next to each other, because we never went to church at all. Well, I went to church when I was at school, yeah. like when they make you go. But... <laughs> at gunpoint. <laughs> get in the chapel yeah but i never went um well i don't that's a lie i went one time with my nana when i feel like i've told this story before i i lost her we went to like i don't know how close to christmas it was but i remember it being Christmassy, and so there was like a christmas party after the church service in like a different part of the church, like one of the rooms. And um I don't know, all of a sudden I looked around and I couldn't see my nan oh, and man. I didn't know anyone else. And I was young, like maybe seven or eight or something, maybe even younger. And I was hysterical. I was looking everywhere for her. And I was crying. I didn't know where she was. And in the end, for some reason, I just went and sat on the stairs, like outside this room. And then... <laughs> it turns out she was in like the kitchen eating mince pies sure and like As i was like too. oh my god she's left me but really she's just eating the mince pies i just remember being really really scared i saw this story take a like <laughs> divergent path from you when you're like and i was so sad and i went and sat on the stairs that would have been a good moment for you to be like and then christ appeared to me <laughs> And he said, listen, Samantha, you don't need to be worried. I will take care of you. Yeah, I think one of the... Uh... And I also saw you go into like a guy in the intercom to do like a message like they do in stores where it's like, yeah. can Samantha's grandma please report to the front desk? That's Samantha's grandma. We have a little girl here who's really missing you. <laughs> I think eventually this woman, I remember she had really short hair and glasses. She came out and she was like what's wrong? And I was like, I can't find my, my nan, nan's left me. And she was like, oh, we'll find out. And that's when we found her in the kitchen. Eating mince and that pies. woman was the Virgin Mary, right? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. But yeah, that's probably the only time I've... I mean, you say my family is more religious than yours. And definitely cer- certain members of my family are religious. But my mom, I've never seen her be like actually actively religious like she we did used to go to church when i was young but I like never, on sundays or just on special occasions on special occasions and on the occasional sunday and then obviously when i was young we used to go to christmas mass um 
But it was that type of thing where I think my mom just did it because the people around her did it mm-hmm. as she was growing up. And so it kind of was still kind of instilled in her that this is what you do. But then it kind of just faded away. Mm. I think there's a certain inconvenience cost where if you don't really feel strongly about going to a church to, to like actually worship, it's like, ugh, I have to get up early on a cold Sunday morning. Like eventually if you're doing it, just do it, it will fall away. As yeah. a habit. And that's basically what happened. I say my family's not religious, but what I really mean is my mom wasn't religious. And so I wasn't ever like forced to go. But my nan was religious up until like her last kind of like, years yeah and i've got like religious uncles like one of them was a vicar and one of them's a missionary so i mean i have religious family but really what i mean is when i say oh my family wasn't religious i really just mean my mom my mom never made us like you know my mom well we say this but then both of our moms made us go to catholic school i didn't go to catholic school you went to it wasn't Catholic, it was Church of England. Oh, right. Well, you, um, know, you know what I mean. No, but that's because it was the school that was right by, like, where we lived. It yeah. wasn't like, go to this Church of England yeah, school. Yeah, I know, but you still had to, it doesn't matter why, like, if even if it was just for but mere I, kind of... Yeah, but I think then all schools were, like, something. They weren't, like... Not all schools. Like, maybe most schools. And why do you say then? It was in, like, the 1990s. What? It wasn't, like... In 80s. The... You, ended... you were born in 85. But I started going to school in 89. Oh, yeah. So you can say... so you start <laughs> going to school in the 89, and you can say to me that I went to school in the 80s. That is the 80s. You basically just picked just in at the last second to be an 80s, is like, the 80s. educated kid. But, like... I'm just saying, like, regardless, think, you had to go. Yeah, but I think of all the schools that were kind of around us, they were all something. They were all, like, Church of England or whatever. That one was just picked because it was, like, one of the closest ones to our house. It didn't have anything. It wasn't one of those, I mean, there are a couple of high schools around here where you can only go if you are religious, um right. and you have to get like when on applying you have to kind of prove that you're religious you know what <laughs> i mean like you have you do seriously do you have to get like a letter from your priest or whatever um from your vicar saying so and so attends church um but my junior school that i went to wasn't like that while it was church of england it's not like you have to go to church to attend it was just you know a really old school that was that is called C of E, like, it wasn't, you know... But did they do, like, religious classes and, like, chapel sessions and stuff like that? Chapel sessions, no. We had very different schools, believe you me. We had, like, you know, when we had assembly in the morning, we said the Lord's Prayer, and then on special occasions, we went to the church that was across the street, like, at Easter and Christmas. But apart from that, there was no... Nothing religious about it. Like, we didn't have what you're talking about. What's chapel sessions? Were there nuns? Well, there were nuns at my um, primary school. But in my secondary school, there was a chapel on the school grounds. And every so often, they took you in there and you had to, like, attend a service and sing hymns and say prayers and stuff like that. And, like, the religious education 
component was like a big part. Like it was like one of the main classes right up until the point where you could kind of choose your own classes in the last couple of years. Like we did regular like RE, but we didn't have like... Yeah, I'm not saying I was given the catechism by a priest, like, you know, as my religious studies class. Uh. I'm just saying like it was a, a like a Catholic school yeah. and that's what it was. Like it wasn't like what you're saying where it's just kind of nominally associated with a certain like yeah. religious denomination like and my yeah my primary school was like the same thing not only did it wasn't even just a chapel on grounds there was a church on grounds wow. like literally out of the front there was two um school buildings and right next to them was a, a full church and so we would go to services there as part of school stuff like how often like every week i can't remember i remember going there like i knew it well so it must have no. been like a regular thing and then like a little bit down the road there was like an actual nunnery and several of the nuns from there were teachers at our school and not yeah. just for this seems like religious, religious topics for just like other topics as well so you were very kind of immersed in that whole like catholic aesthetic and catholic culture did you ever believe in god even when you were little I honestly can't remember. One thing that I said to you, which I, I thought was very interesting. Remember when we were in the car and we were talking about, um, we were talking about the Lord's Prayer yeah. or all the Hail Mary or something like that. And I yeah. said it to you like, and you're like, I can't believe you still remember it. And I said, I don't even remember the words. The rhythm of it has ju was just so yeah. like instilled into like my memory. And I think that's most of what happened during my childhood at those schools it was like they make you say the prayers they make you say the hymns and they make you like pay attention to the these certain things but it was all just kind of like i learned to say like these words or i learned yeah. to sing these hymns but i never actually like thought about what it implied like i never thought about the significance of it so i don't think i ever like actively thought there is a god he's real and i believe in him but I would say prayers and I would sing hymns and I would talk about God because that was what was expected. And then I think at the point when I really had to start thinking about the significance and the implications of that, when I really had to kind of go through it in my mind and decide like whether this made sense logically, I think as soon as that point came in like my intellectual development, it was like instantly. Like I knew mm. that I... That <clears throat> I I couldn't possibly believe in this if I really thought about it. You just made me remember that we sang hymns as well. Yeah. But, and we said the Lord's Prayer like every day at assembly, but I don't remember all the words. While I do remember the rhythm, like what you were saying, but that might be because I'm older. I've had longer to kind of forget it. Yeah. Um. I, feel, I almost feel like I will, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed I don't know what that is. Those something like that what's the lord's prayer is this a catholic thing hail mary yeah hail mary that's a catholic thing we is it? the lord's prayer is um, start me off and i'll be able to do it i haven't thought about this in a long time hallowed be thy name thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, come thy the will lord's be prayer. done on earth as it is in heaven yeah give us this, this day our daily bread. bread yeah and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us oh my god us. don't say the whole thing like literally i haven't said that in like yeah. 10 years but because you, they force you to say it like so many times a day. Like, like I said, it's the rhythm of it. Like, it's like learning poetry. Like sometimes uh. the words kind of 
blend into each other and you just you you remember the kind of linguistic pattern but of you it. You probably had to say it at high school as well, right? Um and my secondary school you went to a religious high school too. We had No, the, see the thing is in my secondary school it was different in terms of they made you go to the chapel services and they made you do religious classes, but we had kids there who clearly weren't Christian or Catholic. Yeah. Um and they said and they would say like you know, that they would get to like kind of just sit there and, and passively like observe what was going on. They weren't expected to take part. Um, That's interesting. And I, if you didn't want to say stuff, they never like, I think when I got older and I started to become more kind of cynical and jaded about the whole kind of religious parade that they made you do, I would just sit in the chapel services and not say anything. And no one would, no one came up to me and was like, hey, you need to be saying the magic words, otherwise we're going to cane you. Like, it was very much just like, they made you go through the motions and your the degree of your participation was determined by you. And, you know, you got to decide that because you were now a teenager and you couldn't just be, like, ordered around like cattle, like yeah. you can kind of do with kids that are, like, it's, six or seven. It's more fresh for you because if you did it in high school, you only stopped doing it at 16, which is only seven years ago. I only did it in junior school, which is twenty yeah, years yeah. ago. So, well, so you had a you had a secondary school experience that wasn't tied into religion. Yeah, it wasn't religious at all. So yeah, I think you're right. Like, we didn't even go to the church at um, special occasions. There was no my whole like pre college pre university yeah. education was at a you know a religious school like. There was religious iconography mm. everywhere. The school had like a religious motto, like, um, yeah, like that's. I don't. The funny thing is, I don't think about that anymore. Like when you when you just brought it up, I'm like, oh yeah, there was like my that whole <laughs> part of my upbringing was like steeped in this kind of like, um, culture and this kind of way of of being taught and being shown things. But I'd never think about it anymore. Which is very, very yeah. strange. Going back to when you were talking about, re- like, getting to that age where you were like, actually, I don't believe in this or whatever. I think when I was little, I always thought, oh, there's a God and certain people choose to follow him and certain people don't. And that's it. Yeah. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, certain people choose to believe there's a God and certain people don't. And I think I always, even when maybe I thought there was a God but I wasn't choosing to follow him, is that because I actually didn't believe there was one? But I don't really know because I was really little. But it was kind of like in my mind, it was like, no, there is a God and my nan, like my nan believes in him and my nan follows him, but... First, what's the re- I didn't know what the reason was that I didn't do that. Um, and then as I got older, I just, it's like I realised that that was like all lies kind of thing. Yeah, the, like what I was going to say was, it's the, like I said, it's the same thing for me where you, you the way you phrased it is perfect. Like you, when I was at primary school, when I was a, a, a kid, like a, a child, like, you talked about God, like you said, God is this or God did that or blah, blah, blah. And it was just kind of this axiomatic, like foundational truth that God is real, of course. And then you talk about God. 
Um, and so it's like you're not even given the kind of the intellectual impetus to to question like you it, you know it's like questioning whether you're walking on the ground or whether the sky is yeah. blue like it does it doesn't make sense to you because no one else around you is even even referencing the fact that this is a question like it is just a state of it's truth it's all like history yeah when you're little and people talk about god and they talk about the stories of the bible and things it's taught like history it's like this is what happened when such and such and at some point you have you're basically saying i don't believe in this part of history yeah um it is very strange how it is just taught like that for a lot of people how it isn't ever said it's never put to you as like a question, as something that you could choose to follow. You either end up just kind of believing because of your surroundings or you don't. Like say, for instance, you went to that school and I went to that school. And if maybe at home, if my mom had been religious, I would have ended up staying kind of like believing all that stuff. Like, I don't know what the reason was that I ended up just not thinking that it was real. Yeah. Um, I just, almost like I just never could believe, like, that it was real. Like, it just sounds so silly to me, honestly. You were so constituted as that you couldn't believe. <sighs> I think that is, yeah. Like I said, it's like, I can't, I never had, like, a eureka moment where I was like, oh, my God, it's so clear to me now. Yeah, God isn't real. Either. It's just, like, once I reached that stage of kind of, like, um, maturity, like, intellectually, where those type of questions started to arise in my mind. It was like, as soon as I reached that phase, I knew that it wasn't true. You just know, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, there's no like... And the thing is, I think my mom, like I said, my mom has never been like religious, quote unquote. She has gone through the motions at certain points, but, and I don't think she realized when she sent me to those schools, um, I think, like you said, with your mom, she just saw them as good schools and nearby schools. And so just kind of, it was like an expedient option. Yeah. And of course, it's fine that it's a Catholic school because, you know, our family is like nominally Catholic or nominally religious or whatever. Um, at least it it was at a certain point. Maybe not so much today. Um, but I don't think she realized like how, or maybe she, I don't know, maybe I'm just projecting in a kind of optimistic way. But I can't imagine that she realized that it was going to be such a huge part of it. Because I never talked to my mom about, like, you know, like, they keep sending us to this chapel and, like, you know. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, you just take it for granted that it's fine for kids to, like... Did she not go to that school? No, I don't think so. It's odd because I feel like nowadays, like, you would purposely... it's something you would kind of like take into account like if i had children i definitely would send them somewhere that wasn't religious that didn't have any religious kind of like um foundation it would just be like a regular school and if they teach re that's fine because it's just basically like teaching whether you believe in god or not um these are books there are that that, yeah yeah, yeah they exist kind of and they are real for a lot of way. people so i do think it you know i actually really enjoyed re even though i wasn't religious because it's interesting it's fascinating just like i really really enjoy churches <laughs> like but, but that's an aesthetic thing like i love to photograph churches the architecture and yeah the atmosphere. um 
but not in terms of like this is God's house yeah. and like blah blah blah, you know. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Like going to church is such a strange experience because you are filled with that sense of awe, although it's not a religious awe. Yeah. It's just kind of like you come into this grand, like incredibly intricately designed space where like it's silent and it's like a vast interior and everyone is looking around in kind of wonder and like um you know scrutinizing the time it's intimidating because you, you do kind of feel almost like there is a power yeah not like god necessarily well, i think but... that's obviously by design yeah like if they made churches look like you know office Buildings. Like you know, yeah, you know, churches where they're just buildings, but people use them as churches, and they might have like a cross on the top or whatever. Yeah. Like that church up the road where I went to vote. It's not like a church yeah. inside; it's just a room. That was so strange. Yeah, that was. You cast your your Brexit vote in a little kind of modern um... Jehovah's Witness. Was church. it? Yeah. yeah, I can't. I couldn't remember which denomination it Jehovah's was. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. and um. But like proper real, ch- like especially Catholic churches, actually they're even more kind of grand and like have a lot yeah. more kind of like figures and stuff, and um, they're pretty beautiful, honestly. Like I said, it, it is by design. It's pa- all part of that ritual of you know weekly worship, where it's like you go there and you soak in the atmosphere and you see everyone else is similarly you know humbled and awestruck and. It's all designed to inspire certain feelings in you, which if you are someone with a religious mindset, then makes you conducive to the idea of, you know, prostrating yourself and thinking certain thoughts. Um, It's very interesting to think about the idea of architecture intended to make you feel a certain way. Like it's not just intended to look a certain way or function a certain way. It's intended to have an effect on the observer it's kind of like it wants to make you kind of do i know people can't see this but like a you know you like do, hunched it's like over, trying to describe your pose yeah like a hunched over kind of like looking up at the windows yeah kind of i am not worthy you know, yeah, yeah yeah it does make you feel like that even when you're not religious To a certain extent, anyway. The funny thing is, I must have gone to church or chapel or whatever it was, like, literally hundreds, if not, like, a a thousand, two thousand times, like, when I was a kid. And I can't remember a single one, distinctly. I can remember very kind of amorphous, like, emotional details or, like, little kind of aesthetic things, like, I picked up on. I remember the hard wooden seats mm. and then like the little padded um kneeling bench in front of them when you had to kneel down i remember the the fact that the books were in front of you on the back of the person's seat in front of you um i remember the stained glass windows which i was never i've never seen the appeal of stained glass windows i have to say i think they're very kind of gaudy and and but in churches i like even them. in churches they just don't I don't, they don't do anything for me, honestly. Like, I think they just kind of look very simplistic and... Some of them are much more intricate than others, yeah, though. Yeah. Like, and grand. Like they're ma- Some can be, like, extremely, like, huge and just have so much detail that you can almost kind of see something new every time you look at it. And some are kind of really simple and almost look like cartoons. Like paint by numbers. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like stained glass paint by numbers. 
And I remember the when you'd everyone would get in a queue when they were giving out the Eucharist and the wine. Um, See, we didn't do that. No. No, so you missed out Christian, on all these, Catholic, on all these so I missed out on all these strange little... um, elements to the ritual, and yeah, like, like I said, I can't remember. Like, it's all just because I, I didn't feel strongly about it at any point, and in a way, it was kind of inflicted on me. Although I don't mean that in the kind of melodramatic sense that it might imply. It was something that you know I was made to do, rather than something I actively sought out. Like all those times in the church, all those times in the chapel, all those times saying prayers in school, like they're they're just nothing. Like there's no, they're just tiny, tiny scraps, tiny remnants in like my memory bank. And it's so interesting to think that let's not pretend otherwise. Like religious schools are designed to instill religion in kids. They take a human being when they're the most intellectually and emotionally malleable and they try to instill these ideas into you when you're at your most receptive, when you're building your worldview and building your conception of, of the universe in a kind of metaphysical sense. And they, they try to get you at that time because that's when you can be gut. And yet it happened to me and it has had like, I mean, obviously there's going to be subconscious effects that I'm not aware of and that might, manifest themselves in kind of sort of ways but it's like i can't remember any of it like it's just it's just a black hole of of non-experience it's so interesting how that can happen yeah and it's interesting whether you choose to do something with it just like us and like so many other people we just ended up kind of like going off into the world and not taking it with us yeah we just like it was just almost like just this kind of like silent ineffective part of school and and now it's gone and it doesn't mean anything and that's fine um it is interesting though what your kind of mind decides to latch on to or not as you grow yeah we ventured into the yeah. savage even <laughs> wilderness in a way it's frustrating because it's so many hours, so many valuable hours of your childhood when you could have been learning useful things for the world yeah. or you could have been indulging in what were your actual interests or hobbies that are spent in just this useless attempt to try and impress something upon you. Like all those hours of church going, I could have spent, you know, reading or learning or doing something like yeah. it's just like i said it's just a black hole of like wasted effort on their part and who even knows who they are like it's not like some secret cabal of, of teachers it's just kind of this institution that has survived and kind of continues on on kind of blind inertia and so yeah what an interesting way to start the podcast <laughs> that wasn't even one of our topics and it we, wasn't, no. we we went hard on it as the rappers say <laughs> as Jonathan Rappersmith once said, <laughs> famous poet that, Is that he was. Is that what they say? Yeah. So should we should we go on to the first yeah. topic? Yeah. Okay. So the first topic that I have is something I saw on Reddit. It was a, um, basically someone just asked, who is your imagined self? Um, describe them to me. Who are they? How are they different from your real self? I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, basically, they just asking like, so many people have this idea of what who they are and um, 
how they are and how they kind of like conduct themselves and often that isn't kind of the same as what you put out into the world um whether that's because you have to work a certain job that you don't want to work or you don't have the types of friends that you wish you had, etc., etc. So I just thought that was kind of cool. Maybe we could talk about that. Yeah. And I'd... see what maybe we each might say what our imagined selves are. Everyone does have this idea about who they are in their mind. Like, I am this person and... I have this type of personality and my body is this way and I do these type of things and I behave in this type of way. Um, and obviously almost never, maybe even actually never, it syncs up perfectly with how you actually are in reality. I think it's more of a kind of aspirational idea. Like for myself, when I think of myself in my mind, it's not just how I am, it's I, I look a certain way as well kind of reminds me there's a part in um the first matrix movie where morpheus talks about residual self-image and he explains how in the matrix computer simulation they look the way that they imagine themselves in their minds and so they don't look like these kind of beaten down dirty like ripped clothes kind of insurgents they look like these polished kind of well-dressed mm. well-fed like people and that's the same thing that happens in your mind. In my, when I think about myself, I look a certain way. And an aspect of that which has probably the biggest effect on my life is I imagine my body a certain way and I imagine like it looking a certain way. And that's why I exercise because I want to look a certain way because that's how it has become kind of... Um, like my mind has, has made concrete this idea that you look this way and so if i look in the mirror and i don't see that it's like well you're, you don't look the way that you should or you don't look the way that you are and i know that's kind of like a mystifying concept to put forth but i do exercise because i want to look the way that i look in my mind because and that's not even it's almost like i wouldn't be even be achieving like a new goal it would just be like realizing myself as i see myself in my mind so you don't look like this in your mind not it's not like a huge like orders of magnitude different like i just in my mind my body is a little bit slimmer i have a little bit less body fat like and so i exercise to try and achieve those kind of micro adjustments so i realize the conception of myself in my mind john i think it is i think you do look in real life, the way you look in your mind, you're just unable to see it because of your insecurities. I think that's definitely and a possibility. Yeah, because you don't see what other people see. You see things that you'd want to change or you see things that aren't really there. And that's how everyone kind of views themselves until they come to like... Um, until they realise body acceptance, honestly. Like, I think I, for the first time in my life, see myself for the way I am and I accept it and I like it. Because I've taken this kind of journey where I look, I've decided to just kind of look at myself in a different way. Instead of, like, um, looking at myself and wishing all these things were different, I look at myself and I 
kind of just like take joy in what I see and that sounds kind of really strange but I do and so now the image of myself in terms of like the way I look in my mind is what I see and so I think you've just some people don't get to that place some people do it's just you know in terms of like I feel like identity like the way you want other people to see you and things like that I you know what this whole thing made me think of when I remember when we first moved to the city and I was like on a hunt to basically find new friends do you remember you should specify that the city is London oh yeah so I was like how do you even meet new people if you don't like work a traditional job or you know go out to like typical social yeah like how are you supposed to meet new people I was talking about how there should be like a dating site but for friends (laughs) friends but purely just for friends not like friends but people use it to date like actually just to find new friends yeah and um I can't even remember what the site was called now, but I ended up joining that site. Do you remember where you could kind of like create an event and then people like looking? Yeah. yeah, it was kind of like meetup.com or whatever that thing is called, but it was something different. So no, I can't remember. City Social or something weird. And um, I remember like basically on that site, almost approaching people that, you know, I thought looked like really cool and like, you know, I thought that kind of looked the way I want to look to other people, if that makes sense. That does make sense. <laughs> it's a strange way, yeah. I realised upon speaking to people like that, that actually they're not the types of people I want to be friends with at all because they just ended up never really, like, being on my wavelength, if you know what I mean. And that actually people who I am really good friends with don't look anything like... um You'd expect you'd them expect to. them to, or in my mind would expect them to, because in a way you think that your friends would kind of look like you, if you know what I mean. Like you'd, you know, not dress similar, but you'd have similar styles yeah. and stuff. You'd have similar kind of aesthetic values yeah. that lead to a certain um, type of appearance. But I quickly realised that actually all the types of people that I thought kind of like. Maybe I just thought I was cooler than I was. I don't know. But um, but it was definitely a kind of like awakening in terms of like how I actually see myself and how I actually am. Yeah, it's that's an interesting concept. The idea of the people who you choose to have around you acting as a component of your kind of projected self-image. Like, yeah. I think of myself as a certain type of person and a certain a person who looks a certain way. And part of that is I want people around me who look a certain way. In a way, you can kind of deride it as shallow or kind of like, you know, devaluing their kind of worth as a person. But everyone makes those kind of implicit aesthetic judgment calls where it's mm. like if someone looks... A, like if I see someone wearing a video game T-shirt... And with like piercings or so, like just some kind of alternative like style, like just something about them that sets them apart where they're saying like, I'm part of a, a like, you know, a certain subculture or I have a certain interest or something like that. That instantly gets my attention mm. and makes me think like this type of person could be the type of person that I would want to befriend. And, you know, um, and I think everyone makes those kind of judgments. Yeah. You have to 
everyone is a stranger until you've met with them and talked with them and kind of gotten to know them. And so people express themselves via their appearance. And part of that is communicating to other people. I am a certain way. Here's some examples of, of, you know, my personality traits, my interests, my hobbies, whatever. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's valid to a certain extent to be like, you know, I want to use that function of like my social intelligence to kind of filter down the perspective pool of of Mm. friends that I could make. Like, obviously, I always get excited when I see other people with like neon hair or like multicolored hair or they kind of dress very kind of like bright and like young like I dress. Um, You know, they have that cutesy thing going that like. But then I find that actually I don't usually, like they're usually actually not my type of people. Um, And like my best friend looks nothing like me in terms of like style. And so I feel like you are just kind of like projecting this idea of how you see yourself when you look for other people. Um, In terms of like, not in terms of how we look, what does your imagined self look like in terms of all the other aspects? Like behaviour and... Um, Yeah, kind of like, well, in terms of like job and like career and things like that. Oh, well, that one's pretty simple. Like, I see myself as a writer. I see myself as supporting myself with the intellectual labour of my writing. Like, that's a very central component of how I see my, I guess you could say, future self. Like, this is the person I want to kind of become, mm. um, which is a little bit different than the idea of the the person you see yourself as right now. Um, so, yeah, that's that's always been kind of settled and very kind of unshakable in my mind. Like, that is my aspiration that is my kind of um i don't want to say end point because that gives it a certain finality that i i don't think it warrants um and almost kind of makes it sound uh somber in a way but that is like my main like life goal like i want to be a writer i want to get paid for my writing i want to have people read my writing and there's a certain you know being a writer in a way almost entails a certain lifestyle, a certain way of, of behaving, of conducting yourself. Like I see myself as someone spending most of my days writing or doing things connected to writing, like researching or reading other people's writings or, you know, whatever it is, like all those kind of tangential things that um, in some way are connected to it. Like, so it's interesting how things like that can kind of entail other things and something as simple in a way as saying, I want to be a writer also means I want to be a reader. I want to read a lot of books. I want to absorb a lot of other people's work. Um, And that's something that I think about a lot. Like I love reading. And even if this wasn't functional in my brain I would still read a lot but there's also a part of of me that says when I sit down on the couch and it's like I can do you know a variety of things I can play a video game I can listen to music I can watch a movie I can you know just procrastinate on the internet looking at cat gifts there's a certain part of me that says um you should read like that's the thing that you should do because 
you are a person who reads. Do you see what I mean? It's almost yeah. like a like a feedback loop. Um, yeah, and so a lot of the time that will kind of push me towards picking up the book that I'm currently reading instead of... The game you're playing. The game I'm playing, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I knew got, that would bug you later on. I so. got kind of lost in... I got lost in uh, in the reverie of my thought. And so it's like, it's weird to think that a hobby, in a way, um, an interest in literature can kind of be a defining trait of how you see yourself. But in my mind, I do see myself as someone who has reading as a big aspect of their life. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I think even if that wasn't true, I would still read a lot. But it's almost like part of the motivation now is also to live up to that idea in my head instead of just, you know, my love of reading, which is there also. So it's like a multifaceted um, impetus towards doing this. I feel like I don't know how to answer this. <laughs> Trying to think of like how I imagine my, what's my imagined self versus my real self. And I think it's hard for me because I have this kind of exterior of like, I accept fully who I am and I want to go forward like that rather than um, constantly wanting to change something. So it's difficult for me to say what I think my imagined self is. I keep coming coming back to kind of like maybe my imagined self is someone who um isn't like so scared like I feel like I'm scared of like everything like I'm scared of trying I'm scared of failing I'm scared of like not trying you know what I mean you're omniphobic yeah so (laughs) so totally just coined a word no big deal yeah (laughs) omniphobic I am omniphobic. I am afraid of everything. Um, Do you want to be kind of more, is it more a case of you want to feel more confident in when you do things or do you want the boldness to do the things that you're not currently doing? It's the things that I am doing. Basically, ever since I can remember, I've had a problem with finishing things. Yeah. Um, Whether that's like, I don't know trying out a new class for something or driving lessons or therapy. Like I didn't even finish therapy, if that makes sense. Like not that you can really finish finish therapy. I never graduated from therapy. But like I always kind of leave things. I've talked about this before as well, how I even struggle to finish reading books sometimes. Not because I can't pick it up and finish it in terms of like a lazy aspect. It's just that, having something be over or having something be done means something and like I've never been able to understand why it is this massive thing that I can't um just be in and so part of my like whole I'm scared to try and I'm scared to fail and is just well if I don't finish it then I haven't failed but I did try and so interesting and I'm just kind of feel like I'm doomed to to continue that cycle of like, I did try. Here's the evidence, yeah. but I didn't finish it, and so I didn't fail. If I that definitely makes get sense. what you're saying. Like, if you if you follow something through to the outcome, 
in a lot of cases you do even if it's just internally like your own perspective on it you do often come away from whatever it was feeling like I got the better of that or it got the better of me or I got what I needed or I didn't like you can break it down in that very um binary duality of like I failed or I succeeded and so you become like a Schrodinger's cat of yourself yes like (laughs) If I don't open the box and opening the box in this analogy is finishing whatever it is, it won't be kind of inflicted upon me the realization of how did I do? Like, did, yeah, I, yeah. did I win or did I lose? And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's very interesting. You do need a certain amount of, um, I don't know what the word is, not courage, but like you need to have that like, emotional strength to finish something and be like i accept the outcome whatever it is because you're not going to change it yeah and as soon as it impresses upon you whatever it impresses upon you you're not going to change your impression of what happens so it's like there is that finality of like it's done i can't go back it's either a bad thing or a good thing now forever like it's chiseled into the stone of my memory and like my self-image I feel like I easily get lost in the coolness of trying lots of different things all at once. That's why sometimes I'm reading multiple books right. at the same time, because it's more of an excuse not to finish it. Or, um, you know, when I was in college, I did like four different courses at the same time or, um, you know, and some of them I didn't finish. And I have like what tends, I want to be a book writer a novel writer I want to that's what I want to have become at the end of my life and I feel like right now I have like 10 stories and some of them are finished and some of them are not and it's like because I because I'm lost in the doing multiple things at a time I am I'm stopping myself from finishing one thing and and so my imagined self is someone who can finish things. Yeah. It's in a way it sounds so simple but it is so profound. Yeah. And I don't even know I'm doing it. Like it's not like this conscious kind of like thing where it's like okay, I'm I, abandoning this. Yeah, I'm at like you just chapter kind of whatever. fade away. You just yeah, you just what happens is my brain gets this like no, but I have this really good idea for this other thing or you know, I'm so busy with my life because I'm like you know I have a blog and I also take photos and I sell things here and I write here and I'm also reading four books and you know so it becomes in my mind almost like this cool thing that I'm doing but really it's just fear yeah I think like I said to you before I think the value of finishing something is is not to be taken lightly yeah you need those kind of you know emotional bookends to something where it's like closure seems like too kind of grandiose a term but it's like when you start a book you open a kind of you open a room in your mind and until you finish that book the room is the door is left open yeah and it's only when you finish the book that you step out of the room you close the door and you reflect on it like you need that kind of um you know, emotional release of saying, I started this and I finished it and it's done. Like, this is why I'm so scatterbrained and so overwhelmed all the time because I've got all these doors open. Yeah. And there's a gust and the doors yeah. are, are clattering to and fro. I definitely think that's something that you should work on. And I think it's something that you would 
reap a great benefit from because it's to me I definitely don't feel it as strongly as you do but I have found myself at points in my life where it's like I'm not finishing anything I'm just you know you have that kind of short attention span moment where you're hopping from one thing to another like I started this book then I started this you know hobby I started exercising or whatever and then I started this game and then I started going to this place and it's like and then they all kind of just you know your attention towards them just slowly withers to the point where you either forget about them or they fall to the wayside and then you you feel trapped in a way because you know that really you should go back to each one and give them an ending or continue them if it's the type of thing that's just, you know, never ending. And so you feel like you can't start new things until you work through your backlog. It's like an anxiety loop. It's like, I, if I finish this, it means something. It means I have to do something with it. Okay. And then, but I get anxious. I get so anxious that I can't finish it. And then there's the anxiety of like, other things like deadlines or having to go here or having to do that. It's like, I know that all those things are going to happen if I finish something. And so it's this fear and anxiety of like being forced to do a certain thing at a certain time. And it's like, my brain can't do that. It's like, I don't know if it's because I spent so long doing something, things that I didn't want to do that now I am, totally against being forced to do something I don't want to do that I just fear myself and like fall into this anxiety pit of like well because I don't completely want to do it or I have this port this anxiety pull that I'm like no I I just can't do it because it's it's making me do it and I don't want to do it and I can't do it and that's why it's like a loop it's this constant kind of like thing that happens over and over again with every single thing even small things it's interesting this idea of rebelling against yourself as your own kind of uh taskmaster like there are these self-imposed senses of obligation where there's a little voice in the back of your mind that says you started this like a month ago like Mm. you haven't come back to it since and it's just lying there and like you should finish it and i definitely get what you're saying where it's like even if it's yourself forcing like making you feel like you need to do it I think there is a part of all of us that kind of instinctively says, no, I won't be forced to do something yeah. I don't want to do. And that's kind of a weird schizophrenic thing. Like <laughs> you, the mind divided against itself. Yeah. Like one part of you is kind of saying, no, listen, like the responsible, you know, healthy thing to do is to go back and, and get this sense of closure. And the other part of you is saying, you know, screw that. I'm, I'm not going to listen to the, you know, these arbitrary rules that the other part of my mind is laying down. I'm going to start something new and get that thrill of like, you know, cracking open a new book and, and diving into a new world. Like, um, it's so interesting that the cost of self-mastery is really gaining the ability to subdue unhelpful parts of your, you know, yeah. you, that little voice in your head or your or what your consciousness is pushing you towards. Um, I feel like I don't have that thing that makes you go forward. I'm just constantly spinning. Like, uh, I'm just constantly spinning around, like, chasing my tail. Yeah. Trying to kind of, like, push everything away so I can survive instead of, like, trying to do the actual thing that I want to do to move forward. I think there's a case to be made for simplification. Like, I think you would be someone who would benefit from saying, I have one book at a time. 
And maybe for a while you only read shorter books so that you know you can get through them in like, you know, two or three weeks mm. at most. But that's not the reason why I don't get through them. I don't get through them... I'm not not finishing them because they're like extremely long or because they're hard to read or because whatever. I can like thoroughly enjoy it. It can be like the simplest read or I could have read like half the book in a day. Like and I'm I know I could finish the other half the next day. It's not any of that. It's just this thing inside me that kind of unconsciously kind of knows the end is near and just drops a wall and I can't get past it for some reason and it's not always I don't not finish yeah. everything I just just certain things for some reason or whatever um I don't know if it's like a protective thing like I'm trying to um protect myself from all the things that could happen or all the things that I could feel that might hurt me or whatever you know it is just fear it's fear of like um like failing in one way or another or whatever um you're trying to shield yourself from the emotional cost either way yeah basically i don't want to be disappointed yeah. like if you want to put it in terms of like why don't you finish a book i don't want to be disappointed i can't be disappointed if i don't get to the end yeah. And so I know it, and it's almost like worse when you know the problem and you know the answer, and you just can't make yourself do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not really sure what else to say to that. I definitely have seen you get better with this type of thing. Um, even maybe you don't see the improvements because they are kind of gradual, and and from a first person perspective, I'm sure they're kind of they happen at seemingly such a glacial pace that it's almost like there's no change whatsoever. But from an outside perspective, I see you getting better at like, yeah. you know. And I think sometimes you do need to cut your losses. If you're halfway through a book and, you know, you've been slowly kind of nipping at the heels of it for like, you know, months on end, mm. like reading 10 pages here, 10 pages there. Sometimes you've got to say, this book is not powerful enough. It's not interesting enough to, to really just grab me by, you know, the hair and drag me through this narrative. I'm going to cut my losses and say, I'll move on to the next one. That book yeah. is is dead <clears throat> to me. Like it didn't, it didn't grab me in the way it needed to. And I think that is to actively choose to end that experience, even if it is technically halfway through, mm. that is an end in itself. And maybe that can start mm. giving you the sense of, of closure. But what I was saying was I've seen you get better at like, you know, working towards finishing stuff, not putting too much on your plate. And maybe you, you wouldn't agree with me on that. But I think, like I said, these are gradual changes. Mm. These are gradual steps to realizing the type of person you want to be. Oh, it's nice of you to say that. Well, it's true. So you can see that. It's interesting what we kind of can't see in ourselves, but others can. Move this to a slightly lighter place. Um, to go back to what you were saying, talk to me about your pink hair. Okay. You have very bright neon pink hair for the listeners who can't see yeah. into this room, which is, of course, 100% of them. Um, <laughs> unless there's some psychics in our audience, in which case I need to contact you about, you know, lottery numbers <laughs> or the nuclear football codes to take it to a much darker what? place. <laughs> um so yeah 
you how long have you had your hair dyed pink? Five years. And you've said to me that you now feel like this is who you are. Yeah. I can't imagine not having pink hair anymore. Like, when I look at myself in the mirror or, like, I pass a shop window or something and see my reflection, my hair is natural to me, if that makes sense. Like, um, it's just how my hair is. And I don't ever think about being a different... Like, people sometimes ask me, like, do you dye other colours? And I'm like, no. It's just just, pink now. I have done that. Like, when I was a teenager, I was all different colours. Though never quite as neon as this, because I'd never bleached my hair before. I'd only ever just used, like, semi-permanent dyes. And so a lot of them were dark, but different colours. Um, and then I went through a stage of like 10 years where I basically had all different shades of like naturally red hair, if that makes sense, to the point where basically I feel like if my hair was naturally black, yeah, I'd have naturally black hair because I like really dark hair. But my ha- natural hair does not, it's like a mousy brown, which for anyone who has mousy brown hair knows that it's like the worst shade of hair colour ever because it doesn't exist. It's like it washes you out. It makes you not stand out. It looks fucking grey. It's like a grey brown from far away. And I don't know. I don't like it. Like it doesn't do enough for me. And while I don't dye my hair so people can pay attention to me, um. I do like standing out. I want to be seen. I want to be visible. You like Um, that when people see you, they see the pink and what that says about you? Well, I don't really know because people have these weird thoughts about people. Yeah, that's true. and, And I obviously have days where I'm like, I wish I wasn't so visible. I obviously have days like that. Um, You know, like if I'm not feeling you know, 100% about myself or, you know, you just have those days where you want to kind of cover up. So I definitely have days like that where I'm like, you know, this is where I don't want 50 people to stare at me. But um, but for the most part, I like what it does. Like, you know, I, I know I'm seen. I wasn't seen in one way or another for a lot of years. And, you know, I felt kind of like I'd lost myself. And so now it's like I have an identity and that's having pink hair as a part of it. So do you do you now looking back feel like you were a person with brown hair who always kind of subconsciously wanted to realise this version of yourself where you had like neon dyed hair? Or do you feel like when you reached a certain stage of your life, you're kind of your self, your internal self-image kind of transformed into someone who needed pink hair? Kind of the second one. Just in terms of, like, for a lot of years I didn't know who I was. Um, and then I got to a point where a lot of things happened and changed and I was finally kind of, like, trying to find out who I was. And um, a part of that was dyeing my hair. And, yeah, a part of that was dyeing my hair, for sure. And now I know who I am. Like, I definitely have, 
like I was saying earlier, like I 100% like what I look like. And I'd never liked completely what I looked like before. Uh, And part of that obviously is because of the pink hair. I have a kind of... um, Do you think it's kind of like an emblem of of self-acceptance? Like, you know, I've made this bold kind of aesthetic choice about myself because I have this kind of confident self-assuredness about I look this way and I like it and I accept it and I don't feel the need to kind of shrink away from um you know strangers gazes like yeah i'm fine to kind of broadcast who i am Mm. one thing i really really hate is this notion that all fat people want to be thin because that's not true um i don't want to be thin and it's not because it's not because i've come to a place of acceptance and love for my body I've never wanted to be thin I've been thin and I aesthetically <clears throat> prefer myself larger like rounder that's kind of like just who I am and um and so a part of that kind of like purposely doing something to yourself so you stand out or um almost having the pink hair as, like, rounding out my appearance. That's me saying, like, almost, like, maybe not as as bold as this, but, like, look at me like I am a complete person. Yeah. And I don't want to change anything about myself, and that's okay. Like, I wish more people felt like that. Um, I wish more people's lives weren't governed by the fact that they hate the way they look. Yeah. It really makes me sad. I really love that idea of a kind of emblem of of overall intentionality. Mm. Saying like, look, I have chosen what colour my hair is. So you know that this is the colour that re- represents who I yeah. am. And that serving as kind of a flag that says like, you know, you're waving this flag of, that's the same for the rest of my body. Like, it's not an accident that my body looks this way. I want to be like this and I accept and yeah. I celebrate the way that I am in all aspects of my physical being. I find that, you know, very kind of admirable, very kind of Aww. interesting from like a sociology standpoint, saying to other people, like, this was a choice and every other part of me even though you may think it was coincidence or just, you know, um, the way that things turned out and I've now kind of had to make the best of it. Like, this is all, this is who I am and this is who I want to be. Because I'm not actively trying to change anything about myself, like, in terms of, like, appearance. Because I don't want to. Not because I can't, because I don't want to. This is me and, you know... Better get used to it, bitches. <laughs> yeah. But I do sometimes worry about, like, um, I do sometimes think about not having pink hair in terms of what if I couldn't have pink hair anymore? Like, if my hair gets really damaged or if I lose my hair for whatever reason. Um, and I've also thought about what being an old lady with pink hair um, not that I will give any fucks in terms of what that looks like, but I have thought about these things and I don't want to 
have that taken away you from me. You don't want to have to give it up. Yeah. Um, but what would you do? Like, say, you know, just as a hypothetical thought experiment, all the pink hair dye in the world, there's like a worldwide shortage. It just can't be bought anymore. And your hair, obviously, you know, in time, your hair is going to grow out and it's going to be brown again. Like, how dare you? Is there a certain danger of like committing yourself to something which requires, you know, upkeep, something which is, you know, in a very literal sense, artificial? I sometimes think about the certain color that I use being discontinued yeah. because it's not, yes, my hair's pink, but. I use a certain pink. I don't use like different pinks every time. I don't just grab any old pink. I use a certain pink. And the way it kind of like fades out of my hair is also, I don't want to sound like I think I'm a special snowflake, but it fades a certain way that you can't kind of like replicate yeah. by dyeing your hair. And so, you know, I do sometimes worry that, like, my colour's going to be discontinued or something. And then I'm, I'm going to have to be a different type of pink, which won't be me anymore. Or I'll have to choose a different colour. So I do think about that sometimes. You need to stockpile it. <laughs> you walk into your room and there's, like, yeah. 4,000 pots of... <laughs> oh, man, the pink hair dye is such a strange... Like, the times that I've put the hair dye on your hair, mm. it's, like, a strange, like... It's pink, like slime. Gelatinous pink uh. gloop. And it it's is, just it's like slime. so slimy and like it's almost like you're putting some like alien matter on the top of your head that like claims you as its own. It's very strange. It feels really weird as well. Do you have any other kind of behavioral aspects to your self-image? Like something I think about is there's a lot of kind of micro decisions you make throughout the day. And I think for me, some of them are kind of strongly... Uh, affected by the way that I see myself inside my head and again this goes back to the aspirational aspect of it like there's a certain discipline um, and I know that's a very kind of severe word to use but there's a certain self-discipline that I expect of myself because that's the type of person I see myself in my head so like if I'm eating a tub of ice cream I know this is a bad example because it makes me sound like I'm worried about calories and, and <clears throat> you know fitness and all that stuff and that's kind of a different aspect but if i'm eating a tub of ice cream i know in my head like if i eat half a tub of hagen like half a pint mm. that fills me up and i'm going to be full and i'm going to have enjoyed the ice cream and i can walk away feeling full but okay i know that if i eat three quarters all the all the whole pint of ice cream i'm going to feel sick to my stomach and i'm going to feel <laughs> like for the rest of the day I'm going to regret that I made this choice because I knew what was going to happen. But, you know, I just kept working the spoon up to my mouth because it's so delicious. And there's kind of a certain inertia of eating where you have to actively stop yourself. Um, and so when I reach that decision point where I'm halfway down the top, there's a part of my mind that kicks in almost like a, a drill sergeant in the army who's like barking at me like, stop, like you need to stop. Because the type of person you want to be has the control they need to stop. And they don't make the bad decision knowingly. And so if you finish this whole tub and you start to feel sick, not only are you going to have to spend the rest of the day with a stomach ache and feeling just kind of, you know, stupid for having done it, you're going to have distanced yourself from the type of person you want to be. 
Does that make sense? Or yeah, does that does. sound completely insane? No, to me, I know exactly what you're talking about because you are a person where control means a lot. Perfection means a lot. Even if you don't kind of like reach the level of perfection that I know you want, it's important to you that that was a, even an aspect. Like to me, it's not. Like you know that I'm very like... um I don't want to say carefree because it makes it sound like you're not carefree, but but I'm, but I'm very not, to be frank. Well, I'm very kind of just like impulsive, I right, guess. Yeah. And you know, like when we're in the shop, like I will touch everything, <laughs> and <laughs> you yes, and, and you I will want to buy I'm everything well I see. I'm like a magpie, but you have this kind of like you have these lines that you need to kind of operate within. And I don't have those. Um, and so while I do know what you mean in terms of like me being able to see you behave that way, I don't really have that. It's interesting because I know it's a lot of it. And like you said about the perfectionism, which is something which I definitely, I would say, suffer from because I don't know how much of a... Um, how much of an asset it is in terms of your thinking, in terms of your intellectual process. Like, I know it stems from my OCD. Yeah. And I know that it's often more of a hindrance than kind of a, a benevolent influence on my life. Um, no, I'm going to stop you there and I'm going to interrupt you. That's not true. I think what it is is that you it's easier almost to recognize the times when control and perfection don't work. Um, but what you're not realizing is that those like five times out of the week where you recognize those, 100% of the rest of the time you are operating in the lines that you want to operate in. And you learned a certain thing yesterday because you operated in that lines. And you can remember this poem that we read because of the way you memorise things, and etc, etc. So I don't think that that's true and I don't want you to say that because that's <laughs> selling yourself short. Like this control thing that you have for the most part works for you, not against you. And so I don't think you should say that. I obviously appreciate the sentiment you're expressing. Um, and I know you're saying it out of, you know, affection for me. Like you, but I, I don't see it as like, it's in a way, it's not like admitting a failing or like something that I've done wrong. It's just kind of conceding a certain limitation in your, um, the makeup of, of your brain, like the makeup of the way you think. Like, there's a lot of it that no one else sees. Like, even you don't see yeah. because, you know, you're not inside my mind. And yeah. I don't always communicate what's going on. Like, it's just kind of happening in a very kind of hidden, internal way. Um, and it manifests itself in strange and, to disagree with you, very unhelpful ways. The, the One of the worst aspects of my OCD which I've gotten a lot better with because I've really, you have. You I've really, really have. tried to, um, really tried to recondition my mind to think about this particular thing and really tried to force myself to let go as much as possible. Um, and this is something I wrote about once and it was very useful to kind of articulate the process. But 
when I would play video games, and it wasn't every single video game, but certain games like RPGs um, definitely exasperated it. In my mind... What's an RPG? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a rocket-propelled grenade, but it's also a role-playing game. Um, Oh, okay. I feel so dumb that I didn't know that. No, you're not dumb at all. Like that's such an arcane, like you know, term in the yeah. in the the gaming world. Um, it's basically the type of game where you go around and you know, talk to people and and fight monsters and you know, build up your character. Like you're playing a role. You're building a okay. character instead of just you know, um, going through the motions of a of a very linear story. Um, but in those type of games. I would have this, and this is very difficult to explain, and it's going to make me sound like a crazy person, but I would have this mental conception of how I wanted to do every step of the way. So if I came into a town, I wanted to go through it, like, sector by sector. I would look at the world map, and I would divide it up into chunks in my mind, and I wanted to, you know go through it in a very exhaustive comprehensive way where i saw everything and i did it in a systematic way so i knew that i didn't miss anything and so that entailed going to talk to certain um npcs which are just people in the world that you talk to so like people who give you quests or people who sell you stuff vendors it entailed going to them in a certain order and buying stuff from them in a certain order and leveling up my character in a certain order And so before I'd even gone into this part of the game, I already had this very concrete, very constrained idea about how I needed to do it, because this is the way that I wanted to play this section. And as soon as I made a mistake, I would have to reload an earlier save and do it all again until I went through it in a, in like this perfect, until I realized this like vision of how I wanted to do it perfectly. I did every step of it in the exact right order at the exact right time. Um, and that was that was kind of tangentially related to the self-image thing, where, like I said, it was like in my mind, I had an idea about how I would play this part of the game. And once that became kind of solidified in my mind, there was no change in it. Like I decided that me, Ryan was going to play this part of the game this exact way and there was no other alternative and so if i didn't do it the right way quote unquote it was like i was playing the game as someone else i wasn't playing the game as myself okay and i know this might be a very mystifying concept for anyone out there who hasn't experienced the joys of of ocd um and yeah like I, I hope you can understand why that wasn't a helpful thing. That really was yeah. just this kind of detrimental, um, self-imposed uh, imperative, and it really kind of sucked the joy, yeah. sucked the enjoyment out of playing certain games because I I felt such a pressure to conform to this this way of doing things in a very exacting way as well. Like, it's not like I gave myself the leniency to make mistakes. Like, as soon as I perceived myself as veering from that set course, I had to reload the game and do it all over again. Um, and so, yeah, not to, I didn't mean to, to bum you out with that anecdote, but that is something that 
I had to deal with for a long time when my OCD started to manifest itself. Um, and it wasn't until relatively recently, the last couple of years, where I really had to force myself to abandon that way of viewing things, to really like, it really does take a very definitive mental exertion for me to make that type of mistake in a game and to like there's almost this this zen moment where i retreat inside myself inside my mind and i have to really like say to myself we are forging onwards this doesn't matter however i play the game however it ends up that was the right way to play it and so that allows me to move on because i've kind of retroactively modified um my conception of how i would do something to allow myself to do it in a very fluid way it's like it sounds like you always had this idea of who you were and you were constantly having to fight to be that person and when you couldn't be that person you had to change who you were because you had to um go along with these new rules of like either not being able to achieve what you thought you wanted to do it to achieve or achieving it and feeling a different way about it i feel like that's incredible first of all knowing who you want to be even if you don't realize that is what's happening and then constantly having to like fight yourself to become that person or fight yourself to say no I'm going to be someone else now because this is not working for me that's incredible and even though I like the longer we've been together I have I see more and more of that on the outside. You know, like when I first met you, for instance, a lot of this was internal. You know, you'd tell me about certain things, but I didn't know it yet because I couldn't see it. But even now with like seeing the struggle, because I can kind of like, A, you show me more willingly, but also just watching you, like it's almost like, knowing you so well I can sometimes almost like it's like I can see inside your head sometimes not completely but like to a certain extent so even seeing like the struggle I still don't have like having you explain it is giving me more of a kind of like fuller grasp on what it meant and what it means and I really do think that's incredible like you can't I can't imagine what that's like and you have really come like so such a long way in understanding what all this kind of means for you and learning to like not almost like you're not constantly having to like you are fighting it but almost like you know it better now you know you learn like tools and like coping mechanisms and you constantly finding like new and you know better ways for you to deal with these things to live with these things to become the person that you want to be and that you are you're like an amazing person (laughs) it's very kind of you to say 
I appreciate you saying that, and I, and I definitely agree with you that you have, you have gained an uncanny ability to see my thought process on my face. Like the times when you kind of like, are you okay? Like, do you need me to step in and help you? With like mm. when we used to go to the the thing with the supermarkets, yeah, where it's like, say we're picking, you know, whatever an apple, like. I would have to pick like the quote unquote perfect apple. Like it couldn't have bruises. It couldn't be like the wrong shape. It couldn't be the wrong shade. Like it, I, I didn't even have like a, I wouldn't have even be able to like articulate a very concise, like definitive criteria. But in my mind, I just had this conception of which one I wanted mm. to get. You know it's not perfect when it's not perfect and you know it's perfect when it is perfect. Yeah. But for you, so even when you know it's even when it like is seemingly perfect, you still sometimes couldn't like step away. And so that you eventually became kind of like the gatekeeper of like you would step in and be like, I'm not gonna allow you to keep doing this. Like I know what you have fallen into like the trap of like OCD thinking like do you need me to step in and like pick an apple for you and I it's such a strange thing to like say out loud because it sounds so kind of um because it does seem so infantilizing like to have to have someone step in but that's what it's like you get you don't even realize it's happening in the moment a lot of times your mind just gets caught Mm. in this loop of like um you know harmful like self-destructive over analyzing and like imposing these like um you know onerous restrictions upon yourself and so you would i would have to turn to you and be like can you just pick you know an yeah. apple, like the best one that you can see please just pick it and pull it into the car yeah. so we can move on and yeah like you said you you have become very good at picking up on when i get kind of trapped inside myself in those moments where I can't ask for help because a lot of the times I don't even realize that I've fallen into the pit like I don't realize how bad it is and it's not always easy to see because especially if you don't know like in the beginning I'm sure it happened and I didn't know it was happening because you can just be like looking at something and that's all it kind of like seems to be um but the more you kind of know the more you realize and you know, sometimes I would ask you, do you need, you know, do you need me to take that from you and just kind of, you know, but now for the most part, I just kind of know and I just take it from you and I put it in the car and that's it and it's okay. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I talk to you. Um, but I'm glad I've got to that place because you do things like that for me as well. Like, you know, and I think it's important that, it not be something kind of like insular it's not this you have to kind of like fight off or um struggle or decide lots of things on your own inside your mind that you can't even explain and so to have that kind of like thing that you know can help like I know when you help me it's just so relieving when I know that you can just kind of like stop me or take something from me or whatever and you can just end the struggle so hard and so inescapable to you but to the other person it's so easy to intercede and like just settle the matter that yeah it feels so good when the other person can just so quickly step in and like tear you out of that um 
that trap of like irrational thinking. Um, and yeah, so those type of OCD things are present in pretty much ev- every aspect of my life. And yeah. that it is tied into self-image. It is all tied into, I want to make the right choice. And this is right with a capital R in terms of like, it's this profound kind of self-defined concept that I have as someone with OCD where I need to do the exact right thing for the type of person I want to be. Like Ryan, again, with a capital R, like as kind of, um, as an idea, as like a concept, like an ideal to be lived up to, he would do this, this way. And so Ryan with a small R, that's me in my physical body. This is starting to sound some like, you know, some university philosophy lesson um but who i actually am ryan with a small r like it's like i have to try and live up to that i have to follow in those footsteps exactly because that's the type that's who i want to be that's who i want to become that's what i want to realize and that is what motivates um my ocd tendencies and yeah the more I can kind of resist that kind of um, irrational impulse, the more I can kind of force myself to just live life, to do whatever comes naturally, like to just, like you said, to have that kind of carefree perspective where it's like, I made this choice and that was the right choice to make because it's the one that I made. And I now just implicitly accept that and move on and to not get caught up in this like, endless loop of analyzing whether it was the right thing to have done or whether you should repeat it so you can do something different and maybe even better like it's yeah hashtag the struggle is real (laughs) it's definitely a battle and once you gain ground you have to fight hard not to cede it again like you have to hold on to the gains you've made i think a lot of life is just kind of like learning to be who you are in the moment and every moment is different even when it's seemingly the same and so we are kind of constantly having to change and grow and learn and know and you know along the way we have like you know we can have regrets or we can decide I want to do it different this way or I want to be able to learn to do it this way every time every time I grow and I learn something new I want to be able to tackle my life in that way and so I I feel like if more people or if we could just learn to accept that things are constantly changing and growing and it would almost be easier to accept certain things um because it probably really is just more about the journey than kind of like get because I sometimes think about what if I had every single thing that I wanted like even now, like, when I have, like, really, really happy moments, I, I'm almost like, I don't think anyone can be happy 100% of the time, because I don't think happy is necessarily something you can just achieve and then be, you know, you unlock it and then it's there forever. I think happy is kind of like moments. You have happy moments. You have moments of learning. You have moments of, like, fighting and struggling and it's really all just about trying to get to those places over and over and that's kind of like what life is but I think that's really hard to accept 
you know, and that's probably why we struggle with so many things. Yeah, because you don't want to have to keep fighting for happiness. Um, you want it to be that kind of like simplistic um, ideal where you can like literally buy happiness. Like I have a Ferrari now and so I've reached a certain threshold of like wealth of like material mm. goods that like I, I highly value that I'm always happy now because I always think about the Ferrari I have in the yeah. garage. Like it doesn't work like that. You buy that you know, fancy car and it makes you really happy for a certain amount of time afterwards, but then it fades and you have diminishing returns. Like mm. when you're younger, you can be given like a toy and you're happy for the whole day. And then you get older and you're an adult and it's like, you buy something nice for yourself. Like if I buy myself, you know, a new book, a new video game, like a new piece of clothing, whatever it is, like it gives you that, kind of those kind of micro bursts of like satisfaction and like gratification where it's like you feel good for a short period after maybe like half an hour an hour where you kind of revel in the fact that you got something new like you know you have that novelty before it fades away and wears off um and so yeah as you get older it becomes harder and harder to take these shortcuts to make these kind of um, materialistic concessions of like I'm going to try to buy my happiness with external things instead of earning it through you know my connections with other people via like the activities that I enjoy I think it's because when we're younger we live in the moment more I mean what five-year-old is thinking about what they're going to be like when they're 30 like you live it you're able because of how your brain is, you're able to live in the now more when you're younger than as you're growing because you're constantly trying to find out who you are. You're constantly trying to, like, fight off the fact that you should be knowing what you're doing or I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And so you're missing the moment. If you could just kind of live in the moment right now and right now is happy, like... You know, when you move from moment to moment and you feel different things, I feel like everything would be better. But it's almost like it's really, really hard to constantly live in the moment because you are always looking ahead. And I and I wish we weren't. I wish I wasn't. Um, because we might not even have those future moments. Do you know what I mean? You might get hit by a Yeah. Trunk. And so I, I do wish we could live like in the now, now always. Yeah. But it's not that easy. Well, life imposes <laughs> itself upon you. You have yeah. to think about bills. You have to think about, you know, taking the next step in your career. You have to think about, you know, what am I going to yeah. eat tonight? Like, do I have enough shopping for tomorrow? Like, unfortunately, these kind of, you know mundane obligations and restrictions kind of force you into this kind of um neurotic mode of thinking where instead of just considering what will make you happy in the moment like what's a good way to spend this amount of time you're thinking ahead you're like you're worrying for five hours today about something that will only take up 10 minutes of tediousness tomorrow like you know um, I think that's why we're always saying it's always nice to have something to look forward to because it's impossible for us not to look forward. And if you don't see anything in the future, like future plans or, you know, you don't have kind of like a steady life where, you know, each moment is going to lead to a certain thing and that's like a sure thing, 
then what are you living for? And that's because we're unable to live in the now. And I don't know how how to make us do that because <laughs> life is so strange yeah. in that we have somehow as a species got to this place of like, you know, you have to do certain things, you have to live a certain way, um, like with like work and bills and the everything costs money. And like if life wasn't like that, then more people could just be like, fuck it, like this is what I'm doing right now and I might do this forever. You know what I mean? Well, there's this kind of idea that's increasing in popularity now, this concept of universal basic income where everyone mm. gets like, you know, whatever, 15,000 pounds, like just enough so that you could afford somewhere to live and like, you know, um, a basic nutritious diet. Like those like fundamental aspects of taking care of yourself would be would be you know the money would cover that and then it would kind of leave you a certain spectrum of freedom where you can decide how you want to spend your life maybe you do want to work maybe you do want to earn money on top of that um, or maybe you just want to spend your days doing creative pursuits that you're never going to get paid for or maybe you want to do nothing or maybe you want to travel or maybe you want to do whatever it is but you would have that kind of baseline safety net where you wouldn't have to worry about i hate my job i hate mm. it but tomorrow i have to go from nine to five yet again because if i don't the roof will be taken away from over me i won't have enough food to eat i won't be able to pay off the debt that i've accumulated getting an education yeah. like i think that's a really interesting idea um I don't think it's ever going to happen yeah, because of people's either. kind of irrational aversion to socialism and its derivatives. But I think that will work especially well for people who kind of like, um, a lot of people just like struggle to survive, you know, especially like it's so easy to kind of like, you know, a lot of people talk about how well everyone's depressed or whatever, or, you know, depression is such a thing now where, but it is so easy to become depressed. Like, you know, whether it's through trauma or a chemical imbalance or you're just not happy with the way things are going, um, if you had kind of like certain things taken away from you and you are afforded like that basic kind of like income so that your basic needs are met, um, I think more people would survive, honestly. Yeah. Well. Yeah, that was a... kind of ended that on a somber note. Yeah. Not that that type of topic was going to end in any other way, probably. We always say like, "Oh, let's do something really light," because I feel like our topics always kind of go in a so not one direction, but we often touch on things like that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's easy for us to be like, oh, let's try and make it lighter. But that's just not the way it goes sometimes. Um, we just have to see where these things go, you know. That's something I've definitely noticed. Like, yeah. no matter how lighthearted some conversations begin, like, there's just stuff on your mind that you want to you want to work out, you want to talk it out, you want to figure out what you think about things. <sighs> You want to articulate things in a way that tells you, you know, how you feel about them. And so you do kind of gravitate to the more intense uh, topics of discussion. Yeah, I agree. 
So, yeah, we should probably move on to the next topic. <laughs> okay, give it to me. Okay, so I saw an opinion piece on The Guardian. I sifted through the hot garbage and I found something <laughs> vaguely sane, vaguely interesting. And, yeah, it's a opinion piece entitled What Makes Celebrity Meltdowns Entertainment Instead of Tragedy? Um, wow. And it's pretty self-explanatory, basically. Um, it talks about... It focuses primarily on Kanye West and his whole recent emotional turmoil where he was hospitalized and everyone was kind of talking about it and scrutinizing his actions and stuff like that. And the guy basically makes the obvious argument that as trite as it sounds and as kind of sappy as it kind of seems, it's like celebrities are still real people, even though they don't seem it sometimes like they sometimes take on this kind of hyper real like symbolic importance for people where they they're seen kind of more of they're more like symbols of of other things or they're more kind of like you know caricatures for some people but they are real people and they do go through real messed up stuff and it is you know pretty fucked up to point and laugh or to you know gawk at someone as they're going through like the worst moment of their lives just because they're you know quote-unquote celebrities and that makes it okay because that everything they do is somehow for public consumption it's somehow to entertain the public it's interesting because most people probably are more invested when, you know, someone famous kind of, like, has a breakdown or, you know, any kind of kind of drama to do with, like, mental health happens. But that's, you know, I think because if you're a fan of them, you're obviously more invested in them than you are a stranger. Um, I don't understand this whole, like, it's funny, like bring on the drama llama kind of thing aspect of it because when I hear about things like that like with Kanye West etc like I just feel sad like I feel sad that a this is happening b that the whole world is watching and c a majority of it is going to be like not very nice Slash people are just going to be, like, taking the piss. Like, if you read, like, the comment section of any kind of, like, article about it, it will just be, you know, oh, well, that's the price of fame, or, like, he deserves it, or, you know, it's somebody else's fault, or, you know, like, all these things. And I think that's because a lot of people are just horrible, like, thoughtless kind of, unsympathetic and don't have empathy for people especially because famous people are like to an extent are so removed like a lot of people don't see certain famous people as kind of like real people they always think like it's a publicity stunt or it's played up for the attention or how could someone so rich and famous be so down or so in trouble you know yeah i think that's what people just assume and expect i think that's kind of why i mean if i saw someone in the street having kind of like a breakdown 
I don't know, if they seem like they needed help, I would go up to them and help them or offer them help. If they seemed kind of like dangerous, then you know you'd call the appropriate authorities or whatever. Um, but there'd never be an aspect of like, haha, that's like funny. Not from not from me anyway. Um, but that's because you're there, you're present. Like, yeah, you're not viewing it through a computer screen. You know, like a thousand miles away. Like yeah. you're connected to it in a very unignorable personal sense like the modern phenomenon of celebrity quote-unquote where you know millions of people have these one way there's a term for it parasocial relationships with these select handful of famous people where it's like everyone knows brad pitt but brad pitt knows you know a relatively small selection of his fans who he's met at Mm. sign-ins or who he's communicated with. And so you have these kind of one-way interactions with them where they do something. You can't do something in return. All you can do is watch and interpret and critique and, you know, mark or whatever Mm. it is. You are kind of the impotent observer where you only see and you can only react in your mind that has kind of dehumanized celebrities in a lot of ways where like i said people see them as kind of like they've become like these symbolic kind of scapegoats where when something bad happens to kim kardashian she is like this avatar of like you know, conspicuous consumption and obscene wealth and kind of vulgar self-expression, like all these things that a certain aspect of society that has those kind of Puritan or like jealous instincts, they despise. And so when something happens to Kim Kardashian, like when she was robbed in France or whatever it was, people don't have the same, like the same synapses in their brain don't fire as they would if they saw a random person on the street being rubbed. What happens is they look at it as it's a rich person. It's a famous person. And that makes them in a sense, not a person. It makes them a symbol of wealth. It makes them a symbol of kind of, um, you know, the cult of celebrity. And so you can, they almost come to celebrate the fact that that has been attacked, that has been degraded, that has been inconvenienced. Instead of thinking a real woman who is real flesh and blood out there in the world has just been held up at gunpoint or knife point or whatever it was, has just gone through this unimaginably traumatic experience um, and is now having to deal with the repercussions of that. Instead of thinking that, they see it more as a rebuke of what that person represents and that's why they can kind of react in this almost what seems like a monstrous fashion of celebrating it and being jubilant that Mm. this person has gone through this personal suffering um i get what you're saying but that's not what i thought when i heard about it like when i heard about it my first thought was this is fucking horrible like oh my god um and then when more details came out about how she was like put in the bathtub or whatever like and she didn't know what was going to happen like i picture that i picture her being like you know her hands being bound or whatever and put in the tub and being terrified and it doesn't matter who she is i am like 
sad for that person as if as if they are a real person as if I might know them or not know them like and so I don't understand how the majority of people don't think that or do they just like bypass those feelings that they could that everyone has the potential to have and go straight to the spectacle of it I don't understand that way of thinking honestly um it is just a very kind of basic fundamental failure of compassion failure of empathy um there's no cost to reacting in that kind of inhumane way of laughing at someone's misfortune when they're a celebrity if something bad happens to your brother and you laugh at it people will regard you as a monster they'll regard Mm. you as a sociopath as someone dangerous to be shunned but if something bad happens to kim kardashian anyone can go on a youtube you know comment thread or anyone can post on reddit anyone can send her an email if they're particularly you know vindictive and petty um and mock her and say like this is a good thing that this happened and there's no societal cost for that person the opportunity cost is so low that they can they can do that without it really being something they really have to think through of like do i really want to leave a message saying haha kim got what she deserved or whatever they can just do it like it they can give in to that impulsive kind of childish instinct um it's just really foreign to me. Like, like, you know, I liken it to going back to, like, comment sections of things. Everyone knows that, like, comment sections of things are just, like, the gutter of the world. It's, like, the worst people saying the worst things. Even just to, like, you know, you watch, like, a YouTube video about something and, like, the handful of the first comments are just, like, you're ugly or, like, <laughs> whatever. And I just don't understand... That thought process and impulse of A, wanting to say that to someone and B, then actually saying it to someone. And the and I'm talking about like non-famous people or semi kind of like internet famous people. And so I don't know what happens in your brain to kind of remove yourself from them as people because you wouldn't say it to like your friend or your brother or whatever. You wouldn't just be horrible to them in that way and so i don't know what makes you think you can just be just a nasty piece of shit to like (laughs) to strangers it just doesn't make any sense to me at all well like i said because there is this kind of asymmetrical relationship between celebrities and not just their admirers or their followers like everyone like i don't care about kim kardashian's exploits like i in no way would I actively follow her life story. Mm. But you can't help but have what happens to her or what she does be inflicted upon you if you go on the internet. Like, mm. you're going to see headlines, you're going to see people talk about it, you're going to see images, you're going to see whatever it is. And so you can't, in a way, you can't get away from it. Um, and so, like I said, because Kim but- Kardashian gets to put out a photo shoot, mm. she does something to everyone everyone now has to see this but no one can respond no one can respond with an action in kind the only thing you can do is think something about it in your head that's the asymmetry that i'm talking about that causes people to have this kind of um this really like 
enraged, petty reaction of like, you know, I want, I wish this person ill. Like, I don't want to have to, you know, there's a certain aspect of jealousy as well. Like, um, you know, why does this person have riches and I don't? Why does this person have fame and I don't? Like, they don't deserve it. Like, as if the world is a strict meritocracy, which of course it's not. Um, And so they make people like Kim Kardashian and celebrities in general into these scapegoats, into these voodoo dolls, which they are just waiting for the world to stick pins and needles into. They get that pleasure from their suffering because, you know, they have all this negative emotion towards them, whether it's warranted or not. And they're just waiting for an opportunity to say, you know, haha, you deserve that. Or like to feel that sense of like, it's good that this person got what they deserved or whatever it is. That's interesting because I feel like I never really thought about it quite like that before. How certain kind of like celebrities or famous people or cer- certain kind of like things in popular culture you can't kind of get away from if you do go on the internet, yeah, like you said. You can't and so I, I never really thought about something being inflicted upon me without my say and I can't get away from it and now I'm angry about it and so I'm going to say horrible shit and when bad things happen to them I'm going to laugh I never thought about it like that but now that you're saying it I can totally understand how how people can get to that angry I don't fucking want to know about Kardashians I'm so sick of seeing about them or whatever and, you know, obviously that jealousy or whatever does, because a lot of white people, you know, people always say it and it sounds like it must, you know, it's not really a true thing, but it is. A lot of people are hateful because they're jealous or they're insecure. That is why people are hateful, you know. Then there are obviously deeper levels of hate which stem from other things, but I don't know why it's just so simple. You said it and now I understand. Like, <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but... Yeah. My whole, like, thought before is because I'm not, like, a mean person or, like, you know, I do have to be, like, provoked, really provoked to kind of, like, lash out that my go-to is always, like, how can you be so horrible? Like, I don't understand that kind of mentality. And so when you said it, I was just like, oh, yeah, wow. Like, I kind of understand now, not that I, you know, agree in any, any way that you should, I don't think you should be like that because of that. I mean, there are obviously certain things you can get away from if you don't want to know about it. And then I guess Kardashians is like an obvious sort of extreme where they are kind of everywhere. They are like ridiculously famous and ridiculously rich and sort of sort of successful. That is kind of like an obvious one that is hard to get away from. So, yeah, I do kind of understand it a bit more now. Um still insane to me but (laughs) i definitely like you said it is understandable but i definitely don't think we should normalize it or try to yeah but i think that's what's happening now it's almost like normal for most people to just laugh at them and be like you know if you for instance if i was like oh i'm a fan of the kardashians and i like watching the show and i follow each and every single one of them on social media and i'm so excited about what's going to happen next like you get kind of made fun of for that it's not like a thing to to kind of proudly be like yeah i'm a kardashian fan like your friends will laugh at you and so in a way i do think it 
is normalized to like be a shit on these people yeah i mean maybe not quite normalized in terms of like when something horrific happens you laugh but for the most part they are kind of made fun of and like which i don't understand because they're so successful and so rich there's obviously a large portion of people that are watching their shows buying their apps doing whatever because otherwise they wouldn't be so rich and successful so it's almost like the people that people like it's like a guilty pleasure people like them in secrecy yeah strange like i said someone like kim kardashian really is a scapegoat and the analogy is precise here because a scapegoat was back when we used to live in villages it was like a a sacrificial goat that in a kind of ceremonial, symbolic way, the whole village put its sins on and said, this goat now bears our sins. And then they sent it out from the village to die. And in that way, they had got rid of their sins. Someone like Kim Kardashian, people see her as embodying like so many bad or negative or undesirable traits. Like They see her as this kind of rapid woman who has gotten successful because she's willing to flaunt her body in in this kind of cheap and and sordid way where she doesn't really contribute and she is all about the pursuit of of fame and riches in this kind of vain um empty way and people see her as 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 the embodiment of all these things and so like i said when something bad happens to her they see that as kind of um the due punishment for that type of thing manifesting itself in the world they don't necessarily i'm not like you know trying to say that they think this i'm just saying that this is the underlying kind of psychological mechanism i think a lot of times they think like something bad happened to kim and that equates to something bad happening in a symbolic sense to all the people who are just kind of rich airheads you know um who have gotten ahead just taking advantage of of cheap publicity and and manipulating people's attentions in this kind of uh, trivial way they don't really stop and think of it as like she is a real woman just like my mom just like my sister just like my daughter just like my cousin whatever they see her as something other than a person and that allows them in their minds it gives them license to treat her other than they would a real person yeah, I see what you're saying. I think it must be a case of that people just love to hate them because why else would they be so successful and rich? Like, obviously, a lot of people are watching and consuming. And it didn't make sense to me then that most people basically hate them. So it really just must be a case of, like, the car crash and not being able to look away. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it, there's an interesting question of whether this is an inevitable end point for all kind of mega celebrities like if you think about how new the concept of like mega celebrity is like it's such a modern phenomenon and i feel like we really don't understand the psychological effects very well if you think about how it must feel to know that billions of people not only know who you are and have especially in the case of someone like kim kardashian where she has a sex tape out there even obviously if she put it out there intentionally that's a insanely intimate view of yourself to put out there for anyone to consume in any way that they they desire 
Um, if you think about what it must feel like to have billions of people watching you, watching your every move, consuming everything you do, like either adoring you or detesting you or being indifferent to you, but they all feel something about you. Um, and th- so many of them are just waiting for the moment that you trip up so that they can, like we've been talking about, point and laugh and say, like, you know, she really deserved this because she's a horrible person because, you know, she has a bunch of Rolls Royces or whatever. Like, I think there's something about that that the human mind, the human psyche cannot cope with indefinitely. Mm. I think eventually you will reach a breaking point. Like, as, like, creatures as people evolutionarily i think we've kind of evolved so that we have a small circle of people that we know and who know us like the village structure where you know like your neighbors and you know your people around the village like you have a handful of people that you know i think there's something about our minds that has that constraint built in and so when you try and explode that and have millions and millions of people pay attention to you in a very unignorable, very conspicuous, very like impacting way. I think there's something about that that kind of subtly like corrodes your sanity, like to pull mm. it as bluntly as possible. Like, but from the perspective of a famous person, right? You're yeah. speaking about like what? Why are there so many like pop stars who you know? go off the rails like why are there so Mm. many like famous actors who have like a crazy addiction like it just seems like there's something about it like it's got to be so weird basically like not being able everywhere you go people know who you are not only do they know who you are but they expect something from you and when you don't give it to them they're disappointed that then becomes a story yeah. that follows you around for a certain amount of time. Um, and then you find yourself changing how you are because you don't want to disappoint. Or because you're fine with disappointing, but, you know, you just need some space. Like, either way you're going to change, it is going to change you. Even if it's just in terms of like the types of things that you like to do because it's harder now. And yes, you come away with like lots of privileges and like perks and things like that. But that has that in itself, those simple things of not being able to go anywhere and people don't know who you are, has got to be so weird. Then, of course, you have just life, living your life, constantly disappointing people, constantly kind of like, you know, everything's a story, everything's kind of like, Oh, this is this is like a scandal or a controversy. Like, I can't I can't imagine that at all. Like, how do you get your brain around that? How do you function the way you used to function? You don't. You you turn into someone else. You find new things to kind of like satisfy you. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, that is odd. I can't imagine that at all. Yeah, it's what you say is fascinating to think about this idea that you can never have quote-unquote normal social interactions again like when johnny depp goes out like he goes to starbucks or whatever he knows that every single person he comes into contact with if they get a good look at him knows who he is and has a certain amount of assumptions about him and if he comes into contact with them like you said 
he knows that they want something from him. They don't want to just, you know, have a friendly greeting and then go on about their their day. They want a photograph or they want an autograph or they want to record a video. They want something from him. It's it's like the one-way relationship has flipped where now that they meet people in public, it's them who are on the opposite end of that kind of one-way street where it's like they want something from you. And like you said, it must be this horrible conundrum where you know that if you don't do it, it might turn into a story that, you know, is splashed across the tabloids. Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp was an ass to me when I was in Starbucks. I just wanted a photograph because my, you know, sister's dying of cancer and she's a big Johnny Depp fan and he wouldn't give it. And he just, you know, he was so like grouchy and like rude. He just got his coffee and left. And And he wouldn't be famous anyway if it wasn't for us because, you know, we pay his bills and people get like that. It's like, well, you owe us this. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And in reality, he just, you know, someone came up to him and said can i get an autograph and he was just like i'm just getting some coffee sorry like people will blow those type of things way out of proportion and then it becomes this huge story so there's so much pressure on you there's so many expectations and there's so many pitfalls for you to stumble into um like i said i think psychologically mm-hmm. speaking it it really is just I feel like it must be a dire place mm. to be. Like, because it's not just one autograph or one photo; it's the groups of people. It's each place you go to. It's each country you go to. It's every time you leave the house. So it's not just that one person with the dying sister who wants it. It's everyone. Yeah. And so, especially when you are like a megastar like that, um, and no one's immune to the negative press. Like, no matter how much of an individualist you are like you know kind of just this rugged self-reliant person who doesn't care what anyone thinks like at a certain point when there are constantly stories about you you know Mm. in the papers or on the gossip rags online about how you refuse you know to give autographs to your fans and how that means that you know you're an asshole like that's gonna get to anyone Mm. i don't care who you are like how much you try to ignore that that is gonna seep into your your subconscious that's going to make you look at yourself in a different way that's going to make you turn against the world because you're going to see them as people who are just waiting for an opportunity to to slam you and that's got to be a really weird way to go through Mm. life and like you said people who have this perspective of like oh boohoo like johnny depp has millions of dollars and he gets to star in these like huge like you know films like so what if he can't like walk down the street without being harassed and so what if he has to worry about being you know this whole concept of the paparazzi is like really infuriating to me like this idea that we've normalized Mm. basically a fusillade of cameras going off every single time you leave the house like how many days do you have where you're like, I don't like my appearance. Like the idea of someone, you know, a million flash bulbs going off in my face and like insanely high resolution photos of all my imperfections and all my blemishes, like blown up on the front of, of yeah. papers. Like that has got to just be a hideous thing to have to encounter. It's not just that. I'm going to tell you, I, I went to see Lena Dunham at a book signing, right? And so this wasn't even a case of, like, paparazzi following you in the street where they, A, follow you, B, can chase you sometimes yeah. in their cars, C, shout horrible, things mean you, things yeah. to you. This was somewhere where they almost had been invited 
right? It was like the press at the book signing. Even in a situation like that where it's got to be a best case scenario, they've been invited, you know they're going to be there, you're prepared for them. You'd assume they're not going to shout horrible things because, again, they're there for you, to publicise you. When I went to this book signing, we were, like, first in the row, pretty much, and so we were right close to kind of, like, where she was. She came out, and as soon as she came out, there was probably only, like, 10 or 15, maybe not even that many, but it seemed like a lot when it was happening, started taking pictures, and every single one of them, even though she was staring right at them, because, again, it was something that was planned and prepared, and she knew they were going to be there, and blah, 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 even though she was standing right there, every single one of them started yelling, Lena, look this way, oh my god, Lena, do this, do this, they were shouting at her because she wasn't smiling, shouting at her because she wasn't standing a certain way, and it was so loud and so aggressive, it was, it was frightening yeah. to see, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, it was so aggressive, it was weird. It was like the, one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. And she has to just stand there with like a robotic smile. Yeah. And like. And this is her in more. a work situation where she, you know, she's put something out there that she wants to, wants to kind of get out there. She wants to publicize this book. She has prepared herself for this day. She's dressed the way she wants to dress. She has makeup on or whatever. She knows she's got to look this way, that way or whatever. So imagine how it feels when you're leaving your house or you're leaving your grandma's house or you want to go to like, you've got to go to the hospital for an appointment or whatever. All these things that you have to do throughout life that aren't your kind of like most convenient things imagine then having like 10 of them following you all day and yelling mean kind of like provocative horrible disgusting things at you i can't imagine that and so when people are like it's the price you pay for fame i'm like no no like (laughs) why should i'm not even famous and i'm outraged for famous people like i don't need to see a photo of this person going to get starbucks do you know what I mean? I don't need to know that this person just went to a doctor's appointment. Yeah. You know, do I sometimes look at paparazzi photos of people? Yes. <laughs> but I don't need to. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I am in some small way a part of the problem because if people didn't consume these things, then there wouldn't be a demand for it. But it is gross. It is absolutely gross. <laughs> and if someone I'm a fan of is like, I fucking hate the paparazzi and, you know, I fucking spit on them because they're disgusting. I'm going to be like, yeah, okay, because they are gross. Yeah. We need, like, the equivalent of, like, free-range eggs for, like, celebrity photos where it's, like, ethically sourced <laughs> with, with the celebrity's consent. Yeah. Like, like, at events. There's yeah. so plenty of events that they go to where, like, taking photos is, like, fine and acceptable or whatever. I don't know why you have to then chase them around for the rest of their life. Yeah. And then, of course, the... The knock-on effect of of this incessant stream of of paparazzi photos is like the dissection the next morning where it's like, oh, look, she's got crow's feet now. And oh, look, she's got these blemishes. And oh, look, she's gained a little bit of weight. And oh, look, she's wearing this slowly dress. Like, it's not even enough (laughs) to have that out there. Then you have people like loudly, like dissecting every yeah. aspect of your personal appearance. It's disgusting, honestly. It's very dehumanizing on yeah. both ends. Like to do that to someone is to dehumanize them. Yeah. And to do that yourself is to make yourself like so petty and so small that you're degrading your own personhood. 
Well, yeah. we say some strong things on here sometimes. Yeah, we do. Say them so casually sometimes as well. Wow. If you mean it, then say yeah. it. That's how I think you should look at it. <laughs> Don't want to be too timid. Like, I just feel like, like to be a paparazzi. Wait, is that this? What's the singular of paparazzi? Paparazzi. Paparazzi is the singular. Is it the singular and the plural? I am a yeah. paparazzi yeah. and I'm part of the paparazzi. Yeah. That's strange. I think so. Anyway, to be, you know, a photographer who follows, who is part of that roving band of paparazzi who, you know, sets up shop outside celebrities' homes, you know, waits at the end of their their front garden, like just outside the gate, ready to pounce as soon as they go out to nip to the shops or whatever it is. Like, I just can't understand how you could sleep at night. Like, what a... What a strange... Um, You're stalking someone, yeah, effectively. And it's become this, like, really normal thing that you do that you're also allowed to do for money. Yeah. You you are just stalking someone. And how many stories have there been of paparazzi, like, shoving their camera, yeah. like, beneath someone's dress or, like, you know, shoving it in someone's face or whatever it is? Like, the, the problem is the incentive structure encourages unethical behavior. It does, yeah. You know you're going to get more money if you get an obscure <clears throat> shot. You know you're going to get more money if the person is pulling like a stupid face that makes them look, you know, a certain way. You're going to get more money if you zoom in on their imperfections. You're going to if you catch them in it yeah. in a situation that's like seen as controversial or yeah. you know. <clears throat> it's and the, horrible. It's really disgusting, honestly. And then the worst part is there's all these like, you know, uh like, if you're a child actor, imagine yeah. what it's like to be, like, a 14-year-old girl who was, like, in Harry Potter or whatever. And, like, the next day, like, you've got 20 grown men with cameras, mm-hmm. like, yelling in your face, like, Terrible. trying to take pictures of every part of your body. And that happens day in, day out. Like, and if you try to, you know, hurry down the street, they chase after you. That's got to be just... I wonder if people go crazy Horrific, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing we've got such a light topic coming next yeah oh my god we've got a palate cleanser of absolute you know (laughs) blackness just like the darkest stuff imaginable coming up um so yeah should we move on to the next topic so yeah the next article i wanted to talk about is a really interesting one that i saw on aon.co which is definitely turning out to be a wellspring of of good articles for my weekly perusal. I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> Just give us the goods. <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Stop babbling, man, and give us the details. Um, and this article is entitled, Murder in Virtual Reality Should Be Illegal. And again, okay. it's pretty self-explanatory. It's an opinion piece making the case for this idea that um, when we get to the point where virtual reality is totally immersive murdering someone in virtual reality will have the same significance the same emotional impact upon a person as murdering someone in the real world murdering someone physically that just as physical murder should be illegal virtual murder should be illegal because they will become they will have become indistinguishable from one another for all practical purposes and I have to say, I didn't think this author argued this case very well with much force. Um, Basically, she was saying, like, until we understand the potential dangers of allowing someone to perfectly simulate killing someone else, 
until we know what that does to the human mind. Maybe it does the exact same thing as killing someone in real life. Until we have fully researched that connection, we should preemptively ban it, just in case. Um, no. <laughs> and no. And that's it. So thanks yeah. for listening to our chat. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. I guess because you are simulating it in a virtual reality rather than with other video games, you're just pressing a series of buttons. Is that basically what they're saying? Yeah. Because in virtual reality, you are really acting as that person. You're swinging the knife or whatever, and you're burying the body or whatever, you know. That's like saying... Okay, do you think if you ha- if you were playing like a game in virtual reality and you have sex with someone, a character, yeah, is that really having sex with someone? Yeah. That's the the that's the what question. Do you think? I I don't know. I don't think that no matter how immersive virtual reality is, like the ethical significance of doing something, of performing a certain action is not the same as actually doing it in real life like because you're not really like you're not really intending for a living human yeah, being to course. die and be dead that's the difference you don't really have like murder in your heart if you know what i mean you're not saying like i want to kill this person because blah blah, blah. You, your brain is functioning on a i'm playing a game and I'm this person's in my way in my way and, and I have to get rid yeah. of them um you'll feel like you know a thrill of like winning at the game like yeah a goal but are you gonna walk away being like hmm yeah. I'm gonna kill my I suddenly got now. a taste like, for murder yeah it's just because to- you're not gonna be able to like smell everything and you're not gonna be able to like feel flesh the same way that you would in real life there is still a barrier yeah it's not like it's not completely real and so i mean i can maybe see how like unstable minds could but their minds are unstable already so you you can't just ban things because some people are unstable like it's like when people say video games make people kill people no they already had that in them somewhere and certain things bring things out or certain things kind of like make them feel more comfortable in doing it or whatever. Um, but video games don't make people yeah. kill people. Like you're already going to kill someone. You're already going to kill someone. Any kind of powerful experience could have triggered what then mm. caused them to go. Like people kill people because, you know, they, whatever it was, they didn't get a promotion at work or, you know, their girlfriend broke up with them or they you know whatever it is stepped on a snail like you have no idea what is go like it seems intuitive to be like they killed people in a game so of course that triggered them killing someone in real life but if someone is truly psychotic where they have become uncoupled from reality those kind of logical connections don't hold up anymore like their brain is untethered from any kind of rational thought process and so you have no idea what is going to cause them to become what they then become. Um, And yeah, I completely agree with you where it's like, it's just the typical moral panic of 
every new medium of entertainment. Yeah. Like when film came out, I'm sure there are people worrying that, you know, because you're just sitting there and absorbing this experience. Mm. Like if something, if you saw someone doing something bad on the screen, that would then have an impact on yeah. you. Like it's just. I mean, of course we are influenced by the things that we consume. Yeah. And of course we are formed in large part by the things that we consume. But again, you know, unless you have an unstable mind, you know, you know that things are right and wrong. You know that while you're in this virtual reality, you can kill people, but you know when you're out of it, you can't. And if you don't know those those things, then you're unstable and you already have it in you that those things might not be so black and white. Like, that isn't going to flick a switch. It's not going to just make you want to go out the next day and murder people. It's not as... It's not as clear cut as that. Yeah. It never is. And I always find it so strange when people just automatically think it is. It's interesting to think, though, if you imagine that this is how perfect the virtual reality is, it's almost like putting your brain in a vat, the classic philosophy for experiment, where basically all your senses are given the stimuli equivalent to killing someone. So, like, you don't even know you're in virtual reality. That's how immersive it is. You really think that you have just walked into a shop and there's a person there staring at you. And you really think that you have a knife in your hand. And you really think that if you kill this person, it will be killing a real person. Of course, it won't. It will, It's all just ones and zeros. It's all just computer code and, and graphics. But there's an interesting thought experiment there of saying, if you have the intent to kill that person and you believe you are carrying out a murder is that not the same as doing the exact same thing but in the physical world like what's more important the person's intent or the consequences the person's intent but then doesn't that mean that in virtual reality if you really feel like you're murdering someone it should be treated the same as actually murdering someone no because you there's not a dead body. So it's the consequences so, that you're privileging Yeah, okay, now. yeah. Basically, in the moment, you might feel all those things, but I think somewhere in a part of your brain, you're going to know that you're not really actually murdering them. It feels this way. You might even come out of it feeling like, fuck, I don't know if I want to do that again because that felt too real. Like... But you know somewhere in your mind that it's not real. You know at the end of it there's not going to be a dead body. You're not going to go to prison. You're not going to feel bad because you didn't really kill someone. You didn't really take someone's life. And so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is kind of mind-fucking because things can feel really real. It's like when you watch a movie and it makes you cry. Like, you know it's not the the exact sequence of events in that movie is not happening right now in front of your eyes you're not a part of that world so your emotions and your tears from watching that film like you know that it's not really happening even though it can be depicting real things um but it still makes you so emotional it can make you really sob um tricks your brain into so it, thinking it, it like is it hard really because is yeah it is hard because you, you it can really trick your brain 
you can be so like submerged in it that that you really do feel feel things but again I feel like you know somewhere in your mind if you are kind of like a stable mind like you have a stable mind you're kind of like a solid person you know somewhere in the back of your mind that you're not intending to kill a human being forever murder yeah like it's it's not it's not real like you know it's not real and that's why when i said earlier like if you start to feel like you don't know whether it's real or not then i think that's when you need to like not be playing those games like you have an unstable mind that's a sign of deeper kind of psychological but you can't like not have things because some people are unstable like what do you think of the argument that there may be certain people out there who do have the desire to experience something like murdering someone else, but who would never normally be pushed to actually enact that in the real world. And being able to do that fully immersed in virtual reality is almost like a healthy outlet for that kind of dangerous instinct. Like they get to play out the scenario without anyone being harmed, without any real world consequences. And so they get to kind of, you know, um, vent those those emotions, those instincts, those impetuses. Do you think that's a valuable thing? Do you think that's something that's okay? I think that's a tricky, tricky road to go down. Because if you go into it already with the thoughts of, I've thought about murder before, or... I've always wanted to know what it's like to stab someone. Like, then I think you want to know what it's like to stab someone. And so I think playing the game at first might seem like it's, okay, now I know, and, you know, it was a thrill or whatever. It's like when you when you start to take drugs and you eventually end up on, like, the hardest drug. It's because it doesn't satisfy you anymore. And so eventually you might, like... Maybe real life's even better. Yeah, and you might, like, stab someone. Yeah. Maybe not kill them, but you might just stab someone and then eventually you end up murdering them. It's like, I think if that's in you, you shouldn't be doing things to try and, like, <clears throat> satisfy that. You should that be trying to remove because, the instinct instead yeah, of... Yeah, because eventually you're going to get to a point where you need more, yeah. and that more eventually will be murder. And so I don't think... I don't think that's a good road to go down. If you've already, like I said, like if you've got it in you, you've got it in you. Something's not just going to make it have it in you. It's already there somewhere. And if you find that simulating murder makes you feel like you really want to murder someone, then you really want to murder someone before. You need, you know, psychiatric help. You need to try and remove yourself from any possibility of doing that in real life and try and figure out what is wrong in your mind mm. like what has kind of come loose in the yeah. the cogs and gears of your psyche yeah and on kind of a tangential level what do you think of the idea of say um like not talking about murder specifically but just talking about carrying out violence in video games in virtual reality like like we've talked about before on the podcast one of the criticisms of violence in media, and especially like things like action movies, is that it's so kind of sanitized, it's so kind of glorified and, and kind of 
shown in a way that is not at all realistic. Like the hero goes into a bar and gets into a fist fight with the, you know, the four villains henchmen and he punches them all a few times and they hold their cheeks and they fall to the ground. And there's maybe a little, maybe a few of them have got a bloody nose or blah, blah, blah. And then he walks out, you know, triumphant. Maybe if in virtual reality, you could carry out that scene, but you saw what violence was really like. When you punch someone, sometimes they can fall and hit their head and die. Or when you punch someone, sometimes you can break the bones of their face. Or if you punch someone, sometimes they have like a horrific emotional reaction where they, you know, break down sobbing and begging you not to hit them anymore. Like there's so many horrible aspects of real life violence that could be impressed upon you and show you that violence is something that is actually disgusting. It is something to be avoided at all costs. Like it isn't this, you know fun like glorious thing that you can kind of take part in without any consequences there are all these horrible ugly sides of it that if you knew about you wouldn't think about violence in such a light-hearted way you wouldn't take the idea of violence so lightly well i think it depends what you're consuming because the types of things that i watch the violence is kind of real and gritty and horrible and traumatizing um if the only kind of violence you've seen is maybe like certain video games where it is kind of like quick and not really messy and, you know, you get that kind of little spill from it or all you've seen is like those flashy action movies where, you know, that type of violence that you were just describing, then I can understand that. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm guessing that that's what this person was talking about. Like you know, killing someone or violence in virtual reality seems more real automatically because it's virtual reality and you're not just kind of like watching and you're not just kind of like pressing a few buttons, but you're in it somehow. Um, I don't exactly know how virtual reality works, but like I'm assuming that that's what it's like. Um, I'm nodding sagely. Yeah. I. <laughs> then... I think it will be more impactful. I think that's why it's not going to be for everyone because the types of people that um, were like violence in video games or violence in the types of shows and movies that they watch is almost like they've become desensitized to it because it's kind of timid and mild and, you know... You don't see the blood, you don't see the guts. Yeah, sometimes you really don't see blood and stuff and... And so I feel like maybe virtual reality wouldn't be for them because it it will probably be too extreme and too kind of um, real, you know. And then there are going to be people who like really love it, but like not in a way that they then want to go out and murder people. Some people enjoy violence, you know. They can enjoy violence without doing violence themselves. And so... Sometimes I feel like you just need to have more faith in people. Like, yes, there are horrible people who do violent things, but we keep coming back to it, and I feel like I've said it a hundred times, but it's in them anyway, you know? So... I think that is the foundational truth you have to accept here, to really understand why it couldn't possibly be worth preemptively banning a new technology to try and somehow prevent these like you know astronomical outliers from occurring like it's just not going to work that way like if someone really wanted to get a virtual reality headset so that they could feel what it was like 
to commit murder. They're going to do that regardless of whether they have to do it on the black market or whether they have to make one for themselves. Like, if someone feels that strongly and is so deranged and so, like, kind of... um, and so, like, in emotional turmoil that they feel such an urgent, insuppressible need to, like, fulfill this experience, they're going to find a way to do it whether you ban it or not. I mean, that's just an argument about the practicality of the matter. But in terms of whether it's right or not like you said it can't possibly be right because like the ratios just don't make any sense like you're talking about a tiny 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 fraction of a tiny fraction of one percent of people are going to be triggered into like you know serial killers because they got to shoot someone in the head on a you know first person shooter played with virtual reality goggles and do you think people are waiting around for virtual reality to become a thing so they can murder people like no they're already murdering do you know what i mean so that sounded so silly but you know what i mean (laughs) it's true though it's like they're not waiting around for you to give them permission to feel what it's like they're going to do it anyway whether it's on a small scale or like a large scale i just think like a lot of technologies, virtuality is morally neutral. Like it really is what people choose to do with it. Like mm. it's not like some technologies like, you know, firearms where it's like there's only really one or two things you can do with it. You can fire at inanimate targets or you can fire at living human beings. So there's almost some kind of um, ethical imperatives that you have to consider on the basis of the inherent technology. But virtual reality is just a screen in front of your eyes. Like, you can put whatever you want in front of it. You can put the most violent, gory, you know, shooter you want. Or you can have the most whimsical, colourful, like, children's exploration game. Rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, like, it really is what you want it to be. And most people are going to want it for relatively innocuous purposes. They're going to want to watch immersive movies. They're going to want to, you know, be on the red carpet and turn their head and see all the celebrities. Mm. They're going to want to go on, like, you know, underwater adventures and watch giant squids. Like, this idea that, you know, it's suddenly going to awaken this (laughs) urge in people to, to... chop off someone's head with like a hacksaw and see the blood and see the arteries spurt like and you know cut through the bones like it's just it doesn't take into account the reality of how people are it's just this kind of alarmist panic mongering like yeah i agree and i feel like to a certain extent you get that with any kind of new technology or anything new people there are going to always be people that are just afraid. That's their first thing. We don't know it. We don't know the limits. We don't know, you know, what the long-term effects are. So let's just not have it. Let's not move forward. Let's not have change because that could mean something bad. And there are always going to be people like that. But they are in the minority, just like all these murderers that you think are waiting in the wings that's also a minority as well. Yeah. It's a tiny, tiny, yeah. infinitesimal minority. Yeah. And like I said, I do think there is going to be a certain societal benefit of having more immersive, but also more realistic depictions of violence in video games. 
like right now if you play a call of duty if you play a you know battlefield whatever it is and you shoot the guy a lot of times there's not even blood there's not like the guy's guts don't spill out the front of his of his combat fatigues like there's no like death gargle there's no like you know um crying for mother there's there's none of the real aspects of violence that make it so viscerally horrible there's just you shoot the guy you don't even see the bullet enter him or exit him he just goes down and then you forget about him there's no blood there's no like any of that there's no gore and i think if we had depictions of violence that showed all those horrible disgusting revolting stomach turning like aspects of violence i think that would do some good in a way of showing people like this is really what violence is like like you can choose to feel about it whatever you like but this is the reality yeah because i think a lot of people it's almost like that type of violence and real life violence for a lot of people is different because it is different you know when they like shoot someone on the battlefield or whatever and like you said they fall down and there's no um blood or whatever of you know of course they know that that's completely different to what it would be like in real life and that's almost like part of why a lot of people can and do play those types of things because yes it's violent as in like you essentially have just shot 50 characters you didn't kill 50 people you know you didn't beat up such and such or see you know it's completely different and i think that's what um i think some people when they're writing about this they seem to miss the point it's you get into the mindset where you don't even think about you're not thinking like every time you turn a corner and shoot you know 10 bullets into the guy and watch him fall you're not like yes i killed another person i murdered another human being you're just thinking either like oh yes i you know i got some more points or i got some more experience like um or you're thinking like okay now i can go to the next corridor or now i can go to the next room like you're looking at it in terms of that like very basic Mm. goal orientated like i have to go to here so this per this obstacle is in my way and i need to remove it like you're not really Mm. thinking about it in terms of murder yeah because if you really had to like hack someone down that's a whole other like set of like things that you need to do like it's a whole other set of emotions it's a whole whole other set of intent you're not intending to kill someone so that by the end you can say i've killed a hundred people you're intending to get as many points as you want and that's a lot different to i want to feel the thrill of like murdering my whole town like i want to see the bereaved families distraught and grieving i want to ruin lives like it's not the same and the majority of people know that and you're just not giving them credit for it by writing these pieces of shit hack articles, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Tell us what you really think, Samantha. Um, yeah, I think to a certain extent, it's just older people who don't know yeah. what video games are. They've just seen the sensationalist coverage on TV mm-hmm. where Grand Theft Auto is, you know, to them it's just killing hookers and, yeah. and chopping up the bodies. Like, they don't understand what video games really are. And so they have a really simplistic yeah. kind of fear of it's unfortunate, what they represent. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. There's some... There's I thought a... that was someone yelling. Like, no, it's like a, a it's yowl. It's a dog. It's like right? a loud, yappy dog outside. Yeah. Sad. 
Why so is it God, sad? it's like the morning. Could be like someone. But then it was it like the walk. middle of the night, like a dog on its own in someone's like garden, like yeah. But it's actually morning, so they might just be taking them for a walk or something. Yeah, or they could be taking but, yeah them out behind the back of the barn. Yeah. No, this went dark and sad. So yeah, we're at the end. It's been a heavy one. It has. Didn't intend it to be. I tried to we find yeah. light-hearted. <laughs> Uh, topics this week but you end up on the interesting articles that you end up on it's really out of your control to a certain extent it's like what are the you know things people are talking about this week yeah and even when you do find kind of lighter things you know they're gonna go in the direction that they're gonna go in you know just the way it is and and i think if you just let it do what it's gonna do it's always gonna be kind of like what you want it to be in the end there's a time for serious and there's a time for fun for fun it's christmas soon yeah yay how much did you want a real christmas tree in here yeah not like a real one as in like a real real one but like Like a a living big one i guess a dead christmas tree yeah we've just got this like little tiny like, little tinsel how tall is it it's is probably it about 10 inches or yeah seven or eight inches i'd say yeah this like tiny i don't it doesn't even really look like a no, christmas tree it's like, it's like this, this red odd... tinselly cone that kind of <laughs> vaguely resembles a christmas tree and we also, also just red yeah that's true odd. it's also on the top of a bookshelf because so you can't see it <laughs> if you put it anywhere near ground level yeah. rudy would I promise you. He'd have, have it for a, breakfast. He'd have a stomach full of tinsel <laughs> by the end of the day. He'd be pooping tinsel. Oh, that would Let's be fun to clean there, up. Yeah. And that's why we can't have a real Christmas nice tree things. or real <laughs> or real Christmas decorations because Rudy mm. will eat them or he will scratch them or he will drag them under the bed. Or break them or eat them or whatever. Why do we have this little fur baby around again? Because we love him. We do, yeah. We do. So, yeah. Wow. And to think this is our last podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot to make an announcement. We've both got terminal cancer. Hey, it got this super went dark. into a super dark super, phase. Super, super, super dark. But, you know, this it is... It might be the last one of the year, though. It is the last one of the year. Yeah, because we probably won't do one by New Year's. Yeah. 2016, huh? Wow. This is the... Uh, it's been a real fucking shit heat. This is the capstone <laughs> on a on a pile of... Burning garbage. Garbaggio? Garbaggio. You've gone mad. (laughs) Sounds like a soup. Isn't there a soup that sounds like that? Um, I have no idea. I have no idea. Can you say cabbage? (laughs) Cabbageo. Cabbageo. I don't like cabbage. It doesn't seem like something humans should eat. Leaves? It's just like leafy vegetable. Yeah, but... What should humans eat? You say leafy vegetable, I say trash. I don't feel like yeah. that's a fair description the leaves, of it. Look, the leaves haven't been kind to me. What does that mean? You were attacked by a tree? <laughs> you tried to invade your orifices when with I its leafy well branches? That, time. that was because of lettuce. You so totally the... didn't hear what I just said, No, did what did you say? <laughs> Everyone else can hear and I can't. Yeah. Someone might say it and slipped tell me under what the said. radar. What did you say? Don't worry about it, all right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, yeah. We have some plugs. Yes. Prepare your ear huge. holes for the uh, the habitual plugs. 
So we hope you enjoyed this episode, as always. It's made with love. With love. It's ethically sourced. And sprinkles. It's vegan. Vegan. Conversation. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. It's really not. It's for hipsters. <laughs> um, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And please share it with anyone else you know please. who might like it. Or even if you think that they won't like it. Maybe you can... <laughs> You can be an evangelist for our tap podcast. <laughs> you can convert them to the religion of Ryan and Sam. Um, new episodes are released two weeks after the last yeah. one. That's what we aim for. I know we've kind of vacillated between different release schedules so far. Um, and that's just a product of the fact that we can't control certain factors in our lives, certain scheduling yeah. conflicts. So you never know when you're going to be able to sit down and devote like three hours to record a podcast. But I think two weeks after the last podcast is a good thing to aim for. So that's what we're going to try to go for. Um, you can find the podcast on iTunes and basically anywhere else that serves podcasts up to your hungry, hungry ears. I just thought of Hungry Hungry Hippo, and then I thought about oh, how hungry... That game was so good. And then I thought about how hungry I am right now, so... Oh, we're going to have such a, a feast a after feast. this podcast is done. Yep. Did you ever play Hungry Hungry Hippos? I didn't have games or toys, because I was a sad little poor orphan you weren't child. A little, I wasn't really. You were a little um, orphan, Timmy? No, I don't think I did play it. It was the worst. Like, you just basically I bashed a lever behind your particular hippo and it would like move forward and try and suck some of the what is the it little suck? i think they were either balls or like little um they were like little kind of circular things that was meant oh, to represent okay. food and there's no there's like no strategy to it <laughs> like it was basically just bash and pray and collect as many like a lot can, of kids kind of like you know toys yeah. like any kind of if they have some kind of competitive aspect yeah like, you know it's not going to be too sophisticated. It's weird that I remember that. <laughs> it is weird. Who did you play it with? I don't remember. Like, I... friends or, like, family and stuff? I... Imagine playing it with your mom. <laughs> Hi, mom. Would you love to play Hungry Hungry Hippos with me? Oh. No, Ryan, I'm studying the Magna Carta. <laughs> yeah. My mom's got a sophisticated political insight. Sure. <laughs> she reads old documents with a little tiny magnifying glass. You're going mad. Stay on track, ma'am. Stay on track. Okay, <clears throat> where are we? Um, oh, yeah. So you can go to rtappodcast.com, which is A-R-T-A-T podcast.com, which redirects to our SoundCloud page, which is where we primarily host the podcast. Yep. Um, and it's where the podcast will be uploaded to first and then, you know, however many hours later it will find its way onto iTunes. I'm not quite sure how that works, but yeah, there's a certain delay for it turning up on the different podcast services. But that's where we upload the podcast first. Um, if you have any comments or feedback or vicious, vicious hate mail, no, you can I'll send cry. it to our precious little inbox at rtappodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to, to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. Even if you just want to say, hey, you guys are crazy. I live in... Moscow. I don't know why that was the first one that came to mind. That would be an interesting place to hear yeah, from. So yeah, just, you know, keep in mind that if you are listening to this podcast, and especially if you're 
following it and have listened to the past episode, you're part of a tiny, tiny, exclusive, ultra elite club. You're the the day one listeners, <laughs> and we'd love to hear from you because we really would love to hear from you. Like seriously, yeah. So come say hey. That would be fascinating to see. And Merry Christmas. Who's listening? Or Happy Holidays? Yeah, depending on your <laughs> degree of political correctness. Um, and to close out the plug section, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. iTunes. Which. Because we're a new podcast, would really, really help us yes, out. Yes, it does. It really does count. That could be your Christmas present from you to us. Yeah. We'll send you a cake or a pie or an angry, angry badger in a pastry box. Yeah. And you send us a five-star review. And honestly, it has... Don't even, don't, don't even bother with that four-star nonsense. <laughs> it's either great or it's nothing. If you're thinking of doing a three-star review... Just don't even bother. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just kid. He's gone Send mad. us good reviews. It's um, Are you hungry? What's hungry again? I don't know. It's like hungry and angry. Yeah. It's yeah. A, you're not really angry. We need like a hungry slash mad. Mad. Like mangry. Hamad. Mangry. Hamad. You went a total different way. Hang. Wait. Hungry and crazy. Hungazy. Craigsky? No, I've I feel lost like it. we didn't need. I've lost I'd it. already nailed it. We didn't need like you know <laughs> collaboration with your second best yeah. ideas. Okay. Um. And so yeah, we've got another episode in the books. I'm proud. Are you proud? We made it. Like you know. Thank God we made it. We pushed through. Well, you pushed through a bout of sickness to get here. Yeah. I wanted to do it earlier, honestly, but you know when you can't breathe? <laughs> talking sucks when you can't breathe. Yeah. Especially so, yeah. talking for like three hours straight. Yeah. Like, and I didn't want to get to a point where we would be doing it and then I'd be like, I've got to stop because I don't feel well. That would suck. So. I've got to cough out some phlegm. Oh, gross. No one wants to hear that. I think that's a good way to say goodbye. <laughs> I don't think it is. I think we're leaving people with No one a, wants to know about bodily A, a terrible fluid. visual. What if they're in the middle of a meal? They've been sitting down to a four-hour dinner. This has been their acoustic accompaniment. (laughs) Nothing makes me more hungry than listening to Ryan and Sam Babylon. About phlegm. About the ancient city of Babylon. You've gone mad, officially. We've actually gone mad. Send the men with butterfly nets and padded sails and straight jackets. We need help. Please. Please. Send help for me, not for him. Just send help for me. How dare you? <laughs> so you get the cushy padded room and the mushy meals and Ew, the, the no. blunted implements to eat it with so you can't self-harm. Okay, no, I'm quitting you off. Help, she's taping over my mouth. No. again for listening to the podcast the music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by christopher from soundslikeanearful.com see you next episode